Welcome to the Great Base Tennis Podcast, episode 162. I'm going to make a phone call, and we have a surprise guest. Dialing one. Dialing two. Hello. Hello, Dave Anderson. Yeah, Dave Anderson. how are you doing? Thanks for being a guest again on the podcast, episode 162, one shy, one mile per hour shy of Sam Groth's serve. Yeah, that was a big one. That yeah, was that. a big one. He, he he actually hit some of those on court 14 uh, against Shane Vinzant. It Shane, sounds like a firecracker. Shane Vinzant, for our listeners, first of all, Shane Groth, the Aussie, look him up on YouTube uh, and you will see... There are a lot of positive points about his serve that he hit 163. Shane went to Texas A&M. I one time had him visit. You sent him out from Dallas, and I had him talking to a group of juniors at that time. I mean, he, wasn't he ranked one in the U.S.? He was ranked really high. Yeah, yeah, he was high. He won the Easter Bowl and very good player, great kid, great work ethic, great family. So I said to him, I was a little I'm not shocked that often, but I said, all right, Shane, Tell us who's the best player you've ever practiced with. He said, Roger Fetter. That guy, yeah. guy, guy threw me for a loop. With, uh, that's he not, warmed Fed up the year he had a horrible, Fed had a horrible Wimbledon. And Shane warmed him up at that tournament. Yeah. I know um, people would like us to talk about stroke production. In the beginning of the podcast, we zeroed in on forehands and backhands, nuts and bolts. Um. Let's just talk a few minutes about doubles. What comes to your mind when I mentioned doubles? Doubles, troubles. Um, well, it was, you know, it was nice to see Davis Cup on and, uh, you know, the U.S. tough one with Finland, but uh, to see, uh, you know, players that are playing conventional doubles like Rom and, and Krychek and, and uh, um, still very, very capable of, going forward off their serves and looking to, to control the point that way. Um, it certainly isn't the norm. Um, you know, it's at the point with, you know, all, all of the kids, obviously that come out of, you know, our program or, or the system, uh, that, that we're trying to implement. Um, you know, I kind of prepare them because a lot of the universities, even some of the top ones they're going to many major power fives, they, uh, I said you're gonna you're gonna likely be steered another direction and told not to come in and uh, but it's just become it's I, I'm always shocked at how quickly people have lost the skill and how it's become so low on the priority list and the skill the skill I, of coming to the net yeah just uh, you know how how quickly that's deteriorated that the the concept of serving and going forward in doubles, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling to me how, how it seems like it's just happened kind of overnight. And, uh, no, I know it hasn't skills. If you don't, if you don't use them, you lose them. Yeah. And one outcry yeah. that we've had is a plea is if everybody in the grassroots level of teaching junior tennis were to commit to, you know, the Monday through Friday part of their junior development program, they would play one bounce doubles. You know, we like to play initially where there's no poaching. So the server comes in, return has to go cross court, and then you play it out. 
you know, you can do many, many different variations of it. But Krychek and Ram, for the listeners, Austin Krychek, Rajiv Ram. Uh, Rajiv Ram, 39 years old. Great how he's how he's playing. I know he got a little emotional when he, uh, I think, just reaching the the final, but the, he actually won with Joe Salisbury. But no, it's... yeah. Um, I think that last match that they lost, I mean, TFO and Tommy Paul were 0 for 4. They had a tough, tough go with Davis Cup. I mean, they're young yeah. guys coming up and playing for their country. They were both the highest ranked players in that, in the D division. It was, and I shouldn't say division section. It was uh, four groups. A, B, C, D had another level. It was just the, what, the 16 teams, narrowing it down to eight. Um, but the match that Krychek and, and Rom lost was, it was a rubber. It was over. Um, that's, that's yeah. always, that's always pretty tough assignment to, uh, to play. In fact, Bob Bryan, who's now coaching his brother's the assistant, he's a captain of the Davis cup team. No one would want to play the rubber, you know, the years ago it was five matches, not, uh, it's a different format now. Yeah. And when it was over, they would still, because of the ticket holders had paid it, had, had paid a price and Bob Bryan would, uh, you know, he'd want to play the singles. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, you know, he won uh, the triple. He won the singles, the doubles, and the team event. He was at Stanford. And, you know, with his being left-handed, his serve, uh, I think it was admirable that, he, you know, he, you know, sacrifices the possibility of having a successful pro career, and they just focused on doubles, the two boys, Brian Brothers. Yeah, I, I mean, I hear, you know, with doubles, uh, it seems like, people that, you know, showed some promise and maybe could make it out there on the tour at some level anyways. Um, you know, they would often talk about being a, the, the talk about a double specialist would come about somewhere in the late twenties. And now it seems that, you know, I'm, it seems like kids that are seniors in high school are talking about being double specialists in college and, and satisfied with that. And, and, uh, but I think that's kind of a cop out. I think that, in a, in another way, is kind of a uh, a cop out in regard to you know building their game to its fullest capacity. Um, but it just uh, you know I think that doubles. Um, I know there's you know the, all the changes trying to take place with prize money and making things uh, more equitable across the board for for the touring pros, which is great. And but I think I think doubles needs. Uh, need some, uh, some major CPR from the, the, the pro games, all the pro game all the way through college and then into junior tennis. And, and like we talk about so often, and I read your uh, camp that's coming up potentially this year with uh, back to the future with, with uh, a kind of a Vic Braden tribute theme. And, and uh, but that's, I think where, where doubles has to go. Just the, the system current system i mean when i see what these kids play on an annual basis regarding their doubles it, it's not going to allow the reps and the exposure the experience i tell all our kids to jump in as many adult tournaments as they can to to try to at least i mean they could play doubles and mix and, and get full matches in of doubles actual you know sets multi you know two out of three sets and and try to gain some experience that way because they're not getting it yeah, Vic Braden, Wintergreen, uh, we've talked about with Mike McLaughlin, Jim Klein, and others, Andy Fitzell. 
uh, I think that's a very good name that you, you brought that up uh, many times in podcasts before with a theme for tennis is back to the future. And I think that applies to, to Vic Braden, uh, just have an event back to the future because one, the title of his, his book, uh, 1977 tennis for the future. And then also his work is timeless because it's based on science. Uh, on mm-hmm. doubles, uh, Robbie Seguzo, you and I spent a lot of time with Robbie and he was number mm-hmm. one in the world for five years. I think history, he played uh, in the team event that was in Dusseldorf for a long time and Jimmy Connors was playing and Connors was on the sidelines. He was playing singles and Robbie was playing Ken Flack and you know, Robbie was so popular with the pros and so Connors starts talking to him a little bit about the doubles. And Seguzo goes, you don't even play doubles. And Connors just started laughing, but people don't realize that Connors, I mean, he won the U.S. Open, he won Wimbledon. But mm-hmm. that the reason for Jimmy, you know, being one of the first um, is so much money came into it. Yeah. No, Seguzo was, you know, he was, he was pretty competent in uh, singles as well. Yeah, he, he was... He was 21 in the world. Um, yeah. You and I go way back with so many different things. Uh, Angela Buxton, when Wimbledon, she came yep. in, you were there six weeks. She came in and she was writing for what's uh London Telegraph. I have a copy of it. Certainly it's not digital, but so many years ago. And I remember, um, you know, just, she was, you know, scratch and point, you know, come over the ball, you know, down on the volleys, just a myth after myth. And, you know, I um, certainly talked to her many times over the years. Um, She read, she wrote her own, she wrote, I think two books. One was on our doubles partner, Theo Gibson. But I remember her uh, asking for a meeting with Robbie. So uh, um, I'm not sure if you were in that meeting, but I was there and she said, Robbie or Robert, no one was calling him Robbie at that time, is I have one thing in common with you. I won Wimbledon doubles. And she said, I can tell you 10 years from now, people will not even remember who you are. And, hmm. and, and what her advice was for him to really zero in on the, the you know, learning the, the nuts and bolts, what, what we were doing with the, not only the, um, the group she had from England, but the, you know, the people all together. Turn the clock ahead. Uh, I was at Volatari's with Robbie. This is, you know, we're going back to the early nineties when we were with, uh, Angela Buxton and, um, Robbie Seguzo is going, Tommy Haas, that guy doesn't, cause Tommy Haas was like a permanent fixture at Boletari's. Mm-hmm. I don't even know who that guy is. Or excuse me. That guy doesn't even know who I am. Doesn't even know who I am. And, uh, of course Robbie gets it going and I, you know, you, you would think, I think I could still, I think I could still play with that guy. Still you play with that guy. He's put, he's put a few pounds on now, but that was, uh, we're going back decades. That was like a decade later, like Andrew Buxton has said, but, but, you know, Robbie Seguzo was a kid, Alex Fisher at the public park in Boca Raton, the teaching pro Memorial park is everybody loved to play doubles, you know, but that, that was back in the day when kids weren't programmed out, they would just take private lessons you know, they hit the backboard. They play mini tennis for Mountain Dews. Your, your favorite drink. Are you off my, my, my ex? My ex. I'm off it. Did you quit yesterday? Yeah. No, I. I. Uh, it's been. Now, if I'm being honest, I went. I. I. 
I, I, I have to start over with my, my chips because I had like a 13 month chip for Mountain Dew. And then uh, somebody brought me some, not knowing that I quit. And so I, I dipped into the Mountain Dew a little bit uh, about a month ago, but I, I didn't even, it didn't even taste good. It's that amazing. Is, that's a good thing. And the sunflower seeds? No, no, got off those too. You know, you get old, you have to monitor the too much salt, blood pressure, trying right. to stay healthy. For our listeners, one time I was in Dallas and Anders and I stopped, we pulled into this place and the uh, Anderson said, well, what am I going to have? And so the, the guy behind the counter goes, Dave, you want the, you want the usual? And it was like a couple of Mountain Dews and I think a, a big chocolate, uh, uh, something, what do they call those? Chocolate what? Oh, Eau Claire's. There you go. But yeah, yeah with Robbie, uh, the doubles, um, I mean, I go way back with his tennis when uh, he had a Western grip on the forehand and doing a backhand, the left hand was underneath. He was just a winner. He was just one of those kids that had the it thing. And uh, the late Jimmy O'Brien started helping him out and, you know, changed his grip. It was pretty close to continental. And the way he, how he ended up with the grips he had, and a lot of it was just trial and error, but, you know, he was so good in a deuce court, a one-handed backhand, hitting inside out. But, it, you know, the doubles turns into strokes. I mean, it, you know, always tease. You got to have a serve. You got to have a volley. Um, with You know, that Angela Buxton, when you tell, when you mention her name, you know, I was young then, and, uh, but I remember when she brought the group of, of talented young British kids over um, to train with us in Boca and, you know, the facility, I, I remember she was very upset one night and, and uh, because the girl she had the most promise for that showed the most promise um, when they arrived at what, what was the Guso Baptist Academy, now the Everett Academy, um, we weren't all finished out yet with the dorms, et cetera. And I remember that story about her. Uh, you know, she, she, she thought this girl was going to be the next great hope for England. And, and because of the young girl's inability to just kind of make the best out of things, she gave her very little chance of succeeding on the tour. And, you know, I've always remembered that. And, and, uh, I think that's such, that was such a valuable lesson for me because I think it it's so applicable even today that, you know, if anything, you know, from a parental standpoint and a coach standpoint, the best thing we can do is put hurdles in the way of these kids and prepare them rather than protect them. Because if they do have high goals, it's going to be just a, it's going to be a challenge to get to them. If but, I'm not yeah, mistaken, they stayed at the uh, dorms at St. Andrews Prep in Boca. Yeah. Um, Tucker Carlson, who's uh, in in the news, um, Tucker Carlson's father-in-law, last name is Andrews. He was the headmaster at uh, San Andrews Prep. He was a headmaster of the prep school I went to in New Hampshire at a different time. So anyway, he, he I got a, I hit it off with him really well. I remember he he really uh, was close friends with Peter Burwash and. And, uh, yeah, that, I thought that was a great setting, but, uh, I don't, I don't actually remember that. Uh, I, re I remember the, the kids, but I don't remember that one incident where the, where Angela said that to you. So what, the, the, the pillow wasn't comfortable enough. What was the problem? Yeah. The, the room didn't meet the standards or something wasn't suitable. And, 
Yeah. I just remember this look on her face. <laughs> you know, I was, I was just kind of pretty, keeping pretty quiet and observing. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny how one of the boys in there, that Daniel Kiernan, who now runs the, uh, or has the podcast, uh, control the controllables. Yeah. I remember Daniel. Yep. Yeah. I've heard Daniel on the podcast. He doesn't, he doesn't remember us. So, so don't lose any sleep. No, I, don't, don't lose any sleep tonight. Uh, uh, no, he talked, won't, he, was, won't lose any. he was talking about his experience, but, uh, um, my mother's expensive pillow is missing. I one time said that it was going to be a title of a book that I'm going to write because a young kid, I remember I was off to go someplace and train coaches and I was, had to make a, vi a video or two before I left. And the kid walks in and goes, my mother's pillow is missing. And it was uh, <laughs> Bud Schultz's son, Christo had taken the pillow. He's in the room next door and said, I think this pillow is very comfortable. And, uh, he, uh, Mom and dad, when your kid goes off to a tennis school, a tennis camp, don't let them take a pillow. Just don't let them take a pillow. It's interesting when people come to visit, if they fly in versus a um, drive-in. You know, I remember I was in Tampa for 15 years, and when we had students, it was very seldom that students were driven to us. They, we, they would come via the airport. I can't tell you how many parents went out and they, uh, they bought up a small fan for their kid. It's like, Oh man, hmm. let them toughen up. Um, with uh, us tennis, Coco Goff wins the U S open. Ben Shelton gets the semis. Three of the men players were in the quarters, but then with Davis cup, you think, um, small country like Finland, 5 million people granted you just have to have a small squad. Uh, but they, they step up and beat, uh, the United States. Uh, for that yeah. last spot. It's kind of like with U.S. hockey, though. U.S. hockey is getting a lot better, and sometimes the U.S. hockey team can edge out the Canadian team. Uh, uh, they've done it quite quite often on the women's side, but uh, I always say, yeah, but the Canadians, they have so much depth. be interesting, you know, um, how much depth do we really have? Um, how, how, many, how many quality teams could we put together? How many quality Davis Cup teams could we put together? Um, coming back to the doubles, um, you know, the, the last time they played, Rajiv Ram was number one in, in the world, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, he was right up there, and he wasn't even selected for the team. And you know, that, that might have been the reason that Marty Fish was, uh, is no longer the, the captain of the Davis Cup team. Let me ask you this. You think that the Bryan brothers, um, they're going to get a, a comment like uh, – Robbie Seguzo had for Jimmy Connors because they're doubles specialists that you think they're, they're sitting in the chair, they're playing singles. Um, you know, I did see where Mackenzie McDonald, somebody told me that he sent a tweet out that um, I'm not on Twitter myself, but I guess it was on the TV coverage that, you know, being coached by the best, but do you think any of that takes place at all? You think any of the guys are thinking, Hey, um, I can't be coached by these double specialists or they, what do they really know about singles? Mm -hmm. I mean, you never know what goes through people's minds, but I, I feel like Bob and Mike Bryan probably have a lot of street cred on, on both ends of it for some reason. Um, that's, that's my gut. I mean, you, you know, having watched them all the way from 12 on play through juniors, I mean, they were one and three in the country usually every year. 
with Goldstein usually nestled in the middle of them. And, uh, I mean, like you said, I think everybody's aware that certainly Bob could have, could have made his mark on the singles court. And I think they, you know, they, nobody really has as much tennis running through their blood as those two. Um, and I think just from that end, and they, they're certainly, I mean, whether you're, whether, whether doubles or singles, I mean, I think that people are winners or they're not. And I think Bob and Mike Bryan are, are very much winners um, and uh, competitors and, and in their own way, you know, warriors. And, you know, certainly McDonald could, <laughs> could benefit from that. Um, whether he, whether he believes he can or not, I don't know. But, um, you know, the competitive nature of those two was pretty high, I think. Just here in the last, you know, month, I've talked to Raven Klassen quite a bit uh, and actually scheduled to have him on a podcast. Um, I talked to him about that. Of course, he, he'd be the first one to say that, you know, well, my name doesn't need to be mentioned in the same sentence with the Bryan brothers. But, how you know, he what he would say is that all doubles players started as singles players. They all grew up. Yeah. They all grew up. And the um, I always say, you know, many times the second string quarterback becomes a great coach because they're around it all the time. You know, they're standing on the sidelines, wearing a headset, um, carrying a clipboard, standing right next to the head coach. I know for years yeah. and years when Raven was on the tour and he wasn't uh, traveling with his family, he would um, – he'd just go hang out. He'd get his workouts in and he would just go watch tennis. Um, the, uh, but I do think that, um, and again, TFO, great player, you know, unfortunate. Everybody goes through that. I think once or twice in their career, maybe uh, Rafa might be the only person I guess who hasn't broken a racket, but um, <laughs> that no, seriously, I, I've heard yeah. that. I've heard that he's never broken a racket. And that's yeah, because that's what of, I've heard. Then it comes back to the grandfather that the, not his father and is not his uncle, but the, the grandfather rules. And this, this, is, this is how you're going to handle yourself. Um, but, you know, right towards the end, I mean, it might've been the point before right in the, in the tiebreaker, um, the backhand volley that he missed. So, and for our listeners and you know, we, uh, unforced air there, hit the microphone with, um, we talk about TFO, we have the ultimate respect for him, but if you could, if, biggest word in the dictionary, if you could turn the clock back, you know, it's like Tommy Paul as well. I mean, he gets extra play on that forehand side, uh, but, when, you know, he comes in, he has a much better chance of squaring the racket it out on the forehand volley than he does on the backhand volley, both those guys. Um, and Yeah, they're way better, way better under net level on it. Yeah, the, the one thing with... Yeah, why don't you explain to the listeners why you say that? Well, I mean, they, you know, it's it's just you see it all the time. Even you know, the TFO and, and and a few of those players and what they share with so many young juniors. I talked about it uh, on this little uh, education uh, video we put on Instagram and and related to the two-handed volley and and how it's just such a great gateway for somebody to learn to really stick a one-handed volley someday. And, um, you know, the foundation of every shot being the grip and, and, and so many people are, you know, thinking they're actually hitting the volleys with say a continental grip only one grip, which we hear a lot. And, and 
the reality is that from what I see day in and day out, that the people who pers- who their perception is they think they're hidden with continental drift, they're not even on a continental drift. They're on a, a very weak hybrid drift between an eastern fort and where the bevel's on three and, and, and the two. It's it's not even really the old composite grip. Um and the racket's just open, so it you know people like that they they're going to love short drop volleys below net level, and they might have a you know to use the word touch or feel when they're underneath net level. But I always tell our kids when somebody comes, you know, you hear at junior tournaments, you know, you should play to their forehand, play to their backhand, but everybody always relates it to the ground strokes, and nobody really targets a particular volley at the net and. Um, with most players, I mean, um, you, you can draw them forward and just hit to a particular volley, and, and you, you can pretty much bank on what's going to come back. And, uh, you know, you don't need to dip it down low when you have those kind of players. Just get it up up, up at their ribs, up at their shoulders, and, you know, there's there's just no foundation there to support the ball. And also, too, if you can make them hit it, they may not miss it, but run forward because they're going to finesse the volley. They're not going to stick it. Yeah. Yeah, it's coming short and cross. Yeah, with uh, but I was talking to George about that uh, the other day, Steve. Sorry, no, no, uh, go ahead, go ahead, George Gold, George Goldoff, and um, you know he he really does a great job through the really through the work he did rebuilding his game with you right around COVID, and uh, you know he's continued to just do a great job of following up on it every day. Is he, a, is, he the, is he deserving of the name Goldoff or is it still Silveroff? Yeah, is is there a something in between? Is there something in between? Yeah. yeah. No, I think he he's a, he's he's really uh, impressed me um, with the way he goes about it and his uh, attitude towards it and his willingness to just you know do drills with anybody and jump on the ball machine and spend, you know, an hour on there where, you know, it's, it's set so much differently compared to the average person that jumps on it. George sets the, uh, the interval rate so that the ball comes out about every 10 seconds. And then he really learns from every rep. It's pretty cool to, to see him go through that. And, uh, but you know, he, you know, I think if he, if he can persevere and, and, and get the right doubles partner, I, I'm, fairly certain he'll uh, get to play at the highest levels, you know, 2024 and hopefully beyond if he can keep, keep plugging away and keep uh, making his dream happen financially, you know, to get out there and played Hitchikata. I believe that's a rinky uh, yeah. last week and lost, but uh, you know, he's right in there. There's the, the lines are so, so thin. Well, for our listeners, but, George Goldoff, I think he also was ranked one, uh, ranked, ranked very high in USTA juniors. Um, you know, I, I, one in 18. You know, when I say that, uh, my son Connor was ranked two, but you know, when he went to Kalamazoo, he wasn't seated two, which was hundred percent correct because there's lots of kids that are 18. They're, you know, mostly playing ATP or ITF events. And sometimes their, their rankings, not, not, not there, but, Never, nevertheless, George was a very good junior. Then he went to Texas, and that's a statement in itself. But for the listeners, it was circumstantial. I know that, um, just quick on the story of George, his father um, wouldn't let him go try to play until he got his degree, and he needed some time that fifth year to get his degree. So he came to spend a week with me, 
but he was told to come see me when he, when he was like 13, you know, and I'd seen him play because he was at an academy where I trained the coaches. So we, when he came, I said, well, here's your reading list. And you, you know, he's going to give hitting lessons, you know, and I'm the wise guy. I go, well, who's going to be paying who, you know, because many times people get to give less, they get to give lessons because they can hit the ball. And I've said many yeah. times on these podcasts, you know, tennis sparring partners, they shouldn't have a speaking part unless they have something to say. So then um, George, you know, he was cannon fodder. He went out to Carson and I said, no, you need to go at that time, Matt Clore, um, who you know, now 15, 16 years have gone by where he's been part of what we do. And I said, you know, you needed to go to the USTA center. They'd welcome you with open, open arms. But he went out to Carson and cannon fodder for the listers means you get to play, practice with the, the big boys. You know, he's practicing with Stevie Johnson and Sam Query. And so then he would run into Matt Clore on the tour. And uh, Matt would say, you need to take more time. You take more time. And then it was circumstantial that he had made the choice, I think, to be three months with this. But, you know, it was almost three times that uh, were during COVID. And it's really interesting. That, I mean, he was there and, and, you know, he really started to understand the material, you know, the the substance, you know, the information that supports why people should make changes, the science. Um, it's really interesting that during COVID, uh, so many players could have really taken time to uh, work on their game technically, but they didn't. Yeah, I think it was a great opportunity to it. I, I think I've said it before um, when I've been on the podcast that from my vantage point, it was one of my favorite periods of months where as a coach because tournaments went off the table and uh you know we were limited to one person per court and so i would you know i was doing a lot of one-on-one -on -one lessons 12 14 hours a day and the court next door to me um because you know at the beginning of covid you remember you people thought you could get it off a tennis ball and what have you and, and so there you know they everybody everybody got basket of balls their own like ball hopper and I just had like three courts of stations. So they had to go through their lesson, go to the court next door. And then they, they were just rotating down, but it was about a three hour workout um, encompassing their one-on-one -on -one lesson. You know, they'd do their technical work and then there was just follow up and then there was some fitness, but it was a pretty fun period because I think it, it was the absence of competition that allowed people to just embrace the, the, the changes they need to make. And, um, but right when that whistle blew and, uh, you know, UTRs, I think, were first to come out with tournaments and then USTA followed shortly after. And um, right when that right when that blew, um, it was like Panic City again. Well, you know, the parents, the players, the teaching pros, everyone needs to understand that you have to have competitive spirit to change your strokes. I tell juniors, I said this may be the toughest thing that you've done in your life so far is trying to change your strokes. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, you know ho hopefully young, young people haven't had that many traumatic experiences, but um, changing technique is not easy. It's easy. Yeah, Coach it's, Andreas it, always says that yeah. he, he, he tell, tells the kids all the time. He goes, <laughs> you know, this, this is tough for you because you haven't suffered or sacrificed yet in your life. Yeah. If you had, this wouldn't be that big a deal, but that's why it is. 
with. Um, but hopefully the U.S. Davis Cup team can bounce back. Um, I, they, I'm sure they will. And I read some quotes from Bob Bryan today with, uh, you know, and Rom, hopefully he can stay healthy. He's 39. He can play a few more years, uh, 42, 43. Um, uh, I'd like to see the, uh, I'd like to see the, the viewership and, and see how that is for Davis Cup or Fed Cup and just see what the typical numbers are for viewership on that. Uh, you know, in contrast to say Indian Wells or any of the slams or, you know, the, the Cincinnati or the thousand and just see if, uh, Davis cup is even attracting the viewership anymore. Um, because it's sad to me that it seems like it's, it's really become kind of a, uh, uh, you know the the beauty of Davis Cup. The, the meaning of it seems to be lost. It, it's it's been quite. It's kind of like doubles. It's just been a deterioration in it. It seems. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think with uh, let me let me say this, and then you can come back and ask ask the question again, so I'm clear on it. But with uh, Austin and Rajiv, um, it's interesting that they played the doubles. You know, that here they are, uh, what, one or three in the world. And the singles players wouldn't have been asked, like, say, years ago. That's why Bob Bryan would play a rubber. You know, the, yeah. the top guys wouldn't play. And uh, I, I've met Rajiv Ram several times, but I know Austin Krychek doesn't have an enemy on the planet. He's such a nice guy. Is is that, you know, I just cringe every time. You know, they're out there and the juices are going. They're playing and it's a it's they've the team is lost just think about being put in that position and um but okay they've been out there they're playing they're playing two sets it's i'm gonna guess it's it's indoors for sure i think it's fairly quick and everybody's got a pretty big serve all world-class players and is let's, let's play a full third like who makes that decision i mean if people love tennis it's like well let's just play a 10 point tiebreaker it just in, in every level of tennis um like this year i met, mentioned it in a podcast recently like the mixed you know why was the mixed uh you know gender to gender no ad and then 10 point tiebreaker but go back and yeah. rephrase your question again well i'm just wondering what your thoughts were because again and maybe it's just my perception and feeling on it it seems like in the public, the, the general tennis public, not necessarily people who are, you know, a hundred percent into it as, as maybe you and I and some of the listeners are. And, and, uh, it seems like Davis cup and the importance of it, the value of it is, is just deteriorated so rapidly, um, over really quite some time now, it seems. And I, I would be curious to see the, the viewership, what the TV numbers show on people following it even at this point well you know labor cups coming up and uh, you know i think it's been both good theater and good tennis I, i've enjoyed uh, being a fan of the labor cup i've met many many people that have actually gone to every labor cup and they have certainly mm -hmm. scored they've they've altered the scoring format but it's tied into a team format so i think it's well thought out it's very clever and it's, it's i think it's worked really well i think with davis cup um, overall, um, and again, I don't even know enough about the Ryder Cup in golf to comment, but I think they should have kept the old format, but just not played every year. 
Yeah. You know, where, you know, the Olympics or the world cup, you know, I mean, even if they played every two years, um, yeah. you know, I, I just, uh, I know that most of the players that I've heard to, or I've listened to, uh, you know, the, and the ones that are commenting on it are the ones that played in the old system and they like the old system better, but, um, is that what yeah, you're referring sure to? Or, or, yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I think it. I don't. I don't know that. Again, like so many things, so many adjustments that have made been made bureaucratically, you know, in the game. I'm not sure that the current direction it's headed is a good one. I, I'm. I'm kind of like you. I've always thought that it needed to be not held every year. Uh, give it a little bit more of a. Uh, you know, prestige feeling when, when it came on and uh, it just seems to get lost in, in the tennis year now um, where, I mean, you know, when I was a young boy, um, there was just so much pride in the Davis cup. And uh, in fact, you know, we mentioned Seguso. I remember, you know, sitting with you and, you know, he, he was his father. Um, Art was, you know, really upset because I know Robert never uh, got got the nod for certain things a, a couple of times, and and Art really wanted him to to get that, and I, it just seemed to be something that the players and um, the, the the tennis fans across the world used to really embrace at a different level. It's, uh, I don't feel that now. Yeah. Coming back to Robbie, 85, I just happened to be in Germany. I certainly was not Robbie's coach, but with his brother, Roger, uh, they had read in the paper that I was in Germany. Roger did. And next thing you know is that I'm in a suite with a U.S. Davis Cup team. Everybody had their own suite. The money that was spent, the U.S. dignitaries, USDA dignitaries that was there. Uh, I've only been to two Davis Cup uh, matches, and one was uh, doing some work for the Roddick Tennis Academy, and I've Got some great tennis tickets and went out with my son Connor. We watched in 2007 when they, they beat Russia in the finals. But mm-hmm. Robbie, uh, are you you referring that he wanted the nod in doubles, or because I remember he wanted in the worst way. Beckard won uh, Wimbledon like weeks before, and um, Aaron Crickstein was scheduled. I believe it was the last match. Um, get her fact checker on that. But Robbie wanted to play that match so bad. And, you know, he, you know, he, without Aaron being there, he was telling Arthur, Arthur, I can beat this guy. And, yeah, that might've been it. Yeah. And, uh, but he, he wasn't given the nod with, no, he, he ended up having some knee problems, uh, some injuries, but, um, yeah, I just think, I think with a little more fitness, um, you know, he worked with Bob Brett at one point and, uh, beat Connors at Wimbledon with, uh, yeah, there, we should have a podcast just to, on our experience uh, running an academy in South Florida. It's so many things, make an outline, go, okay, this is how it goes. Um, a few more things on Davis Cup. Uh, um, Andy Murray, it was his grandmother's funeral. He played and he won. His, grand, his, uh, his father, I don't know. He, his parents were divorced, but uh, he lived most. He lived mostly with his father during his childhood. His mother was, I think, very, very active as a national coach with Scotland. And um, I think many times people think that, you know, his father was removed from uh, 
from the boys, but my understanding that it was just the opposite. But he said, you know, and you heard this many times in the situation, what would your grandmother want you to do? Your grandmother would want you to play. And I think yeah. what he did add, he goes, but you have to win. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> With, uh, I think that's what's so important. I mean, I, people come to see me for technique, but it's really in the end, it's all about, about character. Uh, yeah, we'll get the strokes, but I got some th- thoughts here on Davis Cup. Um, you know, I said once in a podcast, maybe more than once, that you know we should sit in Section F and and eat popcorn and just shut up. But uh, um, th- these are just ex- just thoughts I jotted down quickly. Like Frankie Danzevic is coaching the the Davis Cup team for Canada, and. Yeah. Um, I, I can't really say how oh, I coach Frankie Danzig, but I did video work for Frankie. And I saw him at a tournament years later when he was a pro. And I just, just went up and said, hey, Frankie, because the Maple Leafs, it was playoff time. Started asking him about the Leafs. And he looked at me and said, you're, you're the guy from the video. Uh, <laughs> it was a small group of people in Niagara, um, immigrants. You know, the top Canadian tennis players are immigrants, hungry dogs. And it was, it was amazing. Uh, I mean, I should be able to tell you Bruno's last name. I remember doing vi- video work for Bruno. It was tragic. He went to Kentucky. I think he was number one in the NCAAs. He baby boy. was born like the month before he died in a motorcycle accident. But with Frankie mm-hmm. Danzvik comes to my mind is Richard Hernandez, who's been a guest on our podcast, you know, longtime friend of yours. Mm-hmm. Myron Grunberg, who you know, I know you and I did a tennis workshop in Toronto in time and, so Grun- yeah. Grunberg is coaching Frankie. Now he's a pro. I mean, for our listeners, I mean, he had a win over Andy Roddick. He uh, went three sets with Nadal. At one time before uh, Dimitrov, uh, Frankie Danzevic was called the the poor man's fetter or little fetter. I mean, because he had that type of game. And so what Richard did with, uh, with Frankie's, because they were training at his club in Toronto, he said, Frankie, I, you got to do this. Come in. You got to watch this tape. And I think Frankie was 11 years old. And Richard said, you got to watch this tape. And Frankie goes, what's this guy that want me to watch this tape for? And he looks at it, takes a second look, a third look. And he goes, that's me. That's me. Hmm. It, uh, but the Canadians, um, did you have a chance to see any of that? I didn't get to watch any of that. No. Uh, the college tennis, a shout out for college tennis. Um, Young guy that Dave Secker talks to me about all the time, uh, French Canadian who went to NC State, Alexis, can't really pronounce his name, Gallerno. I remember seeing him play in Austria in the same place I first saw Felix, the uh, top Canadian play. And, but he went to send, so he, I think he's ranked, uh, I don't know, I have it in my notes, like 162 or whatever. So the Canadians were 5 and 0. And then another kid, six foot eight, um, we went to Kentucky because uh, I guess Shapovalov and 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 uh, Dennis and Felix were injured. Um, yeah. But the one great thing about Shapovalov is he was there. You know, I yeah. think that's that's a lesson too for um, over the years. That was one good thing about Roddick and his group is uh, they they all went the Americas for the longest time uh, back in the days of. Uh, you know, some of the big names, uh, they only went if they were going to be actually in the lineup. Um, with, uh, I saw Vicky Duval, it was not Davis cup, but, uh, we have all sorts of film with Vicky, the changes that she made, but 
you know, just circumstance. Uh, you know, she, you, you, once someone changes their strokes, the listeners need to realize they, they just can't say, okay, I got that done. You have to constantly continue to work or you'll revert back. But she's commentating on TV. It was the first time I heard her and I sent her and her mom an email and said, hey, remember this email. Um, I, I told her a long time ago I would help her to become, uh, help her with being a TV commentator years ago because she has a, this delightful personality. Um, I remember telling Mike Costa that. Um, Raven Clausen, you know, he's done TV for the South Africans. Um, but that's just one thing that was on my mind with, uh, watching it on TV. Uh, Nineman was coaching. He's, uh, only, uh, I think 43 years old, 42 years old. He's ranked number 13. Here's a question for you. He's ranked 13 in the world. So he's coaching the Finnish yeah. team. Yeah. How's he do if he plays anybody in the event in one set? If you, you know, if you saw him stand up, he's. He's still, it doesn't look like his body fat's very high. I mean, he's, it looks like he's ready to go for one set. Oh, I mean, he, yeah, for sure he could. Yeah, um, one set, he might, he may not last beyond, but uh, he was, he was a player. Uh, during the time that yeah. Greg, Greg Rosetsky got to the uh, U.S. Open, uh, I believe he was in the finals twice. And, uh, you know, he certainly has a healthy ego. He was taught years ago by one of our students uh danny cooper worked with him a little bit danny said he said he had a serve from the get-go he said but the swings on his ground strokes were better at 14 than they were when he was in the u.s open final he he tried to get rosetsky to come and work with us when we, you and i were working together that's the story in itself uh so rosetsky's all set to come and i go yeah okay all right yeah okay danny we'll do a pro bono and uh then the father called up and said what hotel are you guys going to put me up in? I need a rent a car. And I said, no, we can't do that. So we could put your kid on an airplane. We'll help him out. But Rosetsky uh, used to practice with Edberg in London and said, I only played him one set at a time, but I, I just, I wasn't winning sets from him. Um, the, uh, I think that Picard the, didn't Picard work with both of them. Uh, Tony Picard. I remember Picard for sure, uh, such a highly respected coach, working with Edberg forever. He, he may have been, Picardi, in, he, yeah. he might have been in the loop yeah. uh, with Rosetsky. Both Edberg and uh, Rosetsky, it seemed like, always had that similar move with their head, leaving leaving the contact point, the eyes leaving the head early on their serve. Um, and I talked to somebody, and I can't even remember who it was, years and years ago. And they said, Picard, you know, actually promote, he tried to promote that movement, you know, we're, you know, almost throwing the head downward a little bit to, uh, that was, that was something he, and again, I don't know if this is true. This is somebody that was from, from his area that said that to, uh, he thought that was a key component in, in the serve, um, especially ah. the kick serve. Yeah. Whether that's true or not, I, I can't validate it, but, with Rosetsky, you know, raised in Canada, um, but he played, he did end up playing Davis Cup for, for Britain. Uh, but Tennis Canada, you know, they're defending champion. Jim Rogers said on our podcast that, you know, does anybody remember that? So yeah, I come, come back to your question is that uh, Davis Cup needs a boost, you know, and I, th I do think that um, that, uh, that was one of the reasons uh, for it to be changed. 
Um, yeah, I hope I hope it works. I'm not sure if it's the right move or not. Time will tell. Again, these finished names. Uh, the young guy who uh, beat Tommy Paul, Emil. I'll go with his first name. Yeah, Ruzavari. I mean, that's terrible, terrible shot at it. But if people watch that, you know, he's ranked 48 in the world. So Tommy Paul lost to a great tennis player, but the guy stayed in the pocket. The guy hit backhands. Yeah, you know he he was not in that neutral area, the red zone, running around, hitting forehands. Certainly, I need some help with his volleys, but overall, what a great ball striker. And I mean, it was yeah. great. It was, it was great ground strokes, but then when the ball was short, um, you know, you know, I think Tommy, uh, you know, he's looking to end the point on the midcourt ball, even though, he, I mean, he is coming in more. He is coming in more. Um, the, the, the Finnish player who uh, won the mixed doubles, um, yeah. Hari, you can't really pronounce his last name either, but here's an interesting thing for the listeners is that he went four years. Um, he, he stopped playing, I think, I don't know, like 26 and came back at 30 or something, but he, he took four years off. And I just think that's another way to tell people, especially the, the parents with children, it's brain memory. Coming back to changing strokes, we'll talk about strokes here. Is that you know people have to deprogram, reprogram, and um, yeah, so someone can you know take some time off, and if they're healthy, they can come back in, and it's um, it's kind of like that expression: the brain will bring you back to where where you left off, or it's like riding a bicycle. If people stop, okay, well, let me say that again. The brain will bring you back to where you left off. So for young kids, it's so, so important. Um, and that, like you were talking about being away from tournaments, um, you know, up here in the mountains, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, definitely a concern um, that, well, you know, who are they going to practice with? Who are they going to play sets with? And um, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I can ask people time after time, when you came to visit, were you the best player here? And almost every time it's no, it's no, but they, they don't really see it that way. Um, with, yeah, it's a, it's, it gets messy with that slows down the process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, the connections turned into stories, um, you know, whether, um, you know, um, was with the Davis Cup or Vicky Duval or the tournament. Tell us about, uh, I was going to ask you this. So you have this down. I just wrote down 15 names that, you know, over the weekend watching a little bit of tennis. And what I'll do is, uh, um, you know, during ball pickup, uh, say, okay, pick the balls up, meet me in the lobby, and we'll watch a little TV. Ashton Kruger, I saw she was in a final. How's she doing? Yeah, I mean, I haven't been on court with her since January. Um, you know, she has gone, uh, full time out on the tour for her second year in a row. And, uh, I sent her a congratulatory note and, uh, right before, actually right before you called, right when you were calling, I was, um, reading, uh, a note from her, I guess it's morning there now, Monday morning. Um, I thought she did a great job in this tournament. Um, I was excited to see her playing really, really well um, all over the court. Thought she, uh, you know, you talk about people that just run around and 
try to get their forehand. I think she does a pretty good job of dividing the court well when she's behind the baseline in the red zone and in neutral and, uh, you know, primarily because her backhand in in her mind is her, her, one of her biggest strengths, but it's just how she was taught. Like, like, you know, and, and, uh, I think that the, the maturity that I saw on the, on the TV watching her this week, um, was very evident. It, it, uh, she looked like she um, was there enjoying the battle every single point. And, um, and she was moving on from difficult points, difficult moments in matches met much, much better. Um, but she hits the ball pretty well. And, you know, her midcourt end game, I think, has not been as visible um, in, in the past year and, uh, it's always been there, but she just hasn't used it. So it's kind of been this, this hidden area. And it, it seems like she's much more comfortable, um, coming forward right now. And when she does it, her success rate has been off the chart. So she's, she's getting in closer a lot from, from my vantage point, uh, watching, you know, just primarily from TV, it looks like she is, committed to not giving so much ground around the back of the court. She was just playing so deep in the court that by the time a short ball came, she already had, she was trying to make up 12, 15 feet to, 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 you know, to get just to the inside the baseline and then begin the, uh, the, the race to the net. So. Well, one thing with Ashley, yeah. Ashley Kruger, um, for our listeners, uh, you know, obviously you know, she was with you from what age, what five to 15 or, thereabouts so yeah i mean outside of a 18 month stretch from about 8 to 19 yeah with um golf uh i'm an upstate new yorker so i uh i'm a pagula fan jessica pagula buffalo new york Mm -hmm. where the the real people are from but golf played three events i think with kruger um you know, 20% of the money goes to doubles and you have to split it. But in her young career, the way she's, her size, her mobility, she should play doubles with the idea that, okay, this is really going to help my singles. Um, you know, I think what you said about Angela Buxton is um, all those things that add up, you know, character 101. And this is certainly not addressed to her, but it's not a matter of, well, I don't want to play doubles. Or, oh, there's no money in doubles. It's like, just do what's right. And going to the net um, is something that would really, really help her out. I do think with uh, the brain, the way people are programmed, and the fact how you were so involved with her game from the beginning, when, you know, and I know that one time she was uh, not training with you or she was, you know, there's an academy um, Nikki Johnson, who actually took lessons from us back in East Texas a hundred years ago. He owns an academy mm-hmm. and she was there for a while. And I remember Dave Licker, uh, he came to one time, brought a player to us. You know, a lot of the, you know, okay, great coaches, great coaches, coaches, there's a magic to it. We're making some notes here on talking about Gilbert. He's got some magic, but with, you know, you got to go back to the well. You got to go back to the well. And, and, you know, so our parents listening is that people can go to another program. Like then she was with the USTA. Well, okay. They have better fitness or they have, uh, you know, better purse strings and they can take you here and there and oh, they've got wild cards, but 
even at college tennis, um, I mean, you're 500 plus more of kids you've coached in the last 30 years at Brookhaven where you're based in Dallas is how many college coaches stay, keep you in the loop once they, they leave your program and go play college. I mean, if you had to put a number one, one through 10, 10%, 90%. Yeah. So I I'd say 10. I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a rarity that it is. I mean, I've, um, you know, have kids right in this city that, uh, have gone to, you know, some of the marquee schools around this Dallas Fort Worth area. And, um, you know, they just, they just don't, uh, do a great job. I, I, you know, I put it on both all ends, really. I, I think the, from the coaches and at college, maybe it is, it's always sold that there will be a link and that will stay, uh, you know, involved with it and, and, you know, get you back there. And then, um, but the kids also, I mean, I tell, especially since cell phones, I tell all the kids that, you know, at least monthly, once a month, just film everything and send it and I'll put it in the app and boom, boom, boom. The whole process takes me five minutes and keeps their, at least their technical game in line. Well, also and, just, just uh, to hear the language because it's, uh, they, they will not even hear the language. Um, yeah. I know like Ty Tucker, he did a great job with my son Connor, but there's a language that Ty speaks that I think every American tennis coach should study. I mean, the intensity, the drive, the work ethic, uh, I think the world of Ty Tucker, but the, the, the X's and O's and nuts and bolts, um, same thing, just a routine in front of a mirror. But, yeah. um, coming back to what was already mentioned on this podcast skills, if you don't use them, you lose them. Uh, the five S's, yeah. you know, anything that can be measured can be improved. Uh, S number one is, um, self-management. You know, are you take, taking time just to shadow swing in front of the mirror? You know, I mentioned on a podcast recently that uh, Spencer Johnson's off to UCLA. And I said, find mirrors, do this exercise against the wall. You know, just tracing the swings it takes just minutes. Um, and you just think about what football players do, basketball players do. I mean, track athletes, they have routines to do. People grow away from that. So self-management numbers, there's numbers for strokes. There's numbers for strategy. There's numbers for stats and there's numbers for score and, and rating and rankings. But uh Coming back to this list, um, another Finn who was in the the match that I wouldn't really consider a match when uh, certainly Finland was happy to go up 3-0, but anytime they, um, you know, have it be that 10-point tiebreaker at the end, it's like, oh, flip of a coin. But yeah. coming back to the kid who, the two Canadians, one played for Kentucky, one played for NC State. But the young guy who played for Finland at the end, 796 in the world, I'm sure he's just getting started and he's ranking in singles is higher. Um, at one time, he's ranked number two in Finland. I, I was in Finland uh, like just two different times. It's such a small, beautiful place. But he played tennis at the University of Alabama. And mm -hmm. at one time, maybe that's still accurate. It was a safe bet to say that um, – one out of every four top doubles players in the on, on the men's side played college tennis. The parents, the parents yeah. of junior tennis players, have to understand that college tennis starts with doubles. And if you can't play from the service line in, you're not even half a player because from the service line in, it's more than half the court. Yeah. 
But, you know, one thing I, I read uh, about this young man, first name is Patrick, so I can, I can pronounce that name, but um, King Kovalata is um, when Nieneman retired, he was big buddies with Federer. And I remember the, the famous hockey player, Timo Solani, uh, was playing. Mm -hmm. He's a very good tennis player. Um, great, great hockey player, retired. And he lived out, lived out by Ivan. Ivan. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. The Ivan. Yeah. I thought you meant Ivan. Lendl, yeah. Our Ivan's better than Lendl and Lendl only got to the eight U.S. Open finals in a row. Mm -hmm. But no, he played one point in front of 13,000 people in Helsinki against Federer. I, I have to find out if that's actually true. You know, who, who would think of it here? This guy's going to come out and play one point against Federer. But, you know, so obviously he, uh, that was a pretty small stage, even though it was on TV. And I mean, they're playing for their country. But uh, this thing for our listeners, um, the two Canadians and the Finn, they all played college tennis. And college tennis starts with doubles. And, you know, in junior tennis, I mean, all you got to do is look at somebody's ready position and they're, they're not ready for doubles. Um, with, uh, it's interesting. The, the tennis world is a small place. Um, Austin Krychek gets the mixed doubles final with Jessica Pagula and, and uh, Jeff Kotsir, who you helped me with years ago as a little kid. He lived with us in Texas. He's coaching. Yeah, he's coaching. Uh, here's something that uh, when I think of Rajiv Ram, you got to mention Joe Salisbury. Um, I met his college coach, uh, Paul Gobel, a really good guy. He's actually working for Tennis Memphis. They've hired him as a tennis director, and happy to hear that he uh, respects the curriculum, the Great Bays. But uh, he, I was told he never served volley. He served volley at every point. Never stayed back singles or doubles, first or second serve. I have to ask him that. That would be fun to interview him. But also, too, the parents is that um, I believe it was a year and a half. He had some sort of illness where he couldn't play while he was a junior. Um, the, uh, Sal Salisbury. Yeah, Joe Salisbury. I mean. Yeah, I, I, mean, I saw him shortly after that playing. Uh, you got a wild card into a challenger and. Um, gosh, it's going back quite a few years now, though. I think Connor was playing then. I was with Connor uh, in Hawaii one time, and uh, he was playing with an Irish guy. I think his last name is O'Hara or O'Hare, a red-haired guy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, I think he's actually coaching now. I think he's coaching Joe Salisbury. Um, yeah, and you know the. Uh, I just remember that all these guys from Memphis and, you know, Memphis has had, you know, they had very respectable teams, but yet it wasn't the brand name. It wasn't uh, one of the, the top marquee schools. And um, it was kind of said in jest, ah, oh, they played at the University of Memphis and, and, uh, but, you know, it's, they're both uh, going strong in tennis and especially Salisbury. I mean, with, let's talk about Gilbert for a minute. Uh, um, coaching Coco Goff. Um, there's some ma definitely magic about uh, Gilbert. Um, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I got some notes here on this. Well, I think, I mean, he, uh, I think people um, have the ability to get people to believe in themselves. I mean, so, certain people. And he, you know, I think he, uh, coming aboard, he, he has a way in dealing with some of those athletes. I mean, I think they're, you know, he's, he's a very clever guy and, uh, jumping aboard the right ship. Um, 
but uh, you know, one of my favorite Gilbert stories that I think sums it up, I think he realizes the importance of, of some little things that, you know, when he took Roddick over and, and, uh, told Roddick, Hey, I'll, I'll do it, but you're going to get rid of the visor and put a, put on a baseball cap and look like a, an athlete. And, you know, a week and a half later, I think out in Scottsdale, I believe it was Roddick ended up beating Sampras. And so I think, you know, these people that he takes over, um, are, you know, he, he, he has certainly helped him get a few more steps closer to home plate. There's no doubt about it. And he has, he has a, a magic, I guess you could say about getting him there and how he does it individually with each one. And, um, but it'd be interesting to see him take, uh, you know, uh, Emma Raducanu right now and uh, see where that ends up in a year, year and a half. No, that's, that's a great thought. Um, Anderson, I can't believe you got it wrong. Sampras, I'll go to the fact checker. Sampras. Uh, uh, I got it wrong. Andy Roddick beat him in Miami. And oh, let, let, Miami? Me, let me go off on a tangent on that. Andy Roddick. Now, I mean, I think of Jeremy Wurtzman beating uh, Andy Roddick at Kalamazoo in the 16s. And then a few years later, Brian Wilson was working. Um, uh, Brian Wilson was working with us. He, he didn't come to this coach's workshop ahead, but Jeremy came and helped me out with it. So they go to Miami, and Andy Roddick is on the pro tour. So Wilson, and uh, who played at Illinois under Craig Tiley, mm-hmm. who was mentioned quite often in his podcast. So, and... You know, I think of Rom. Rom won the NCAA doubles with uh, Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson had a palm up serve, just like Andy Fitzell yeah. helped JJ uh, Wolf the palm up serve. Yeah. So, you know, Brian was sent to work with me, and they, they they came and stayed with us several times. I had a place in Florida where people could stay with like twenty beds, and but with um, Andy Roddick is the best junior in Boca. Andy uh, uh, Andre Agassi gets divorced. And then he actually says that he was stalking Steffi Graf. So he's in Boca. Mm-hmm. And who's he hitting with? He's hitting with Agassi shows up in Boca and he's practicing with Andy Roddick. So Andy Roddick's practicing. He's starting to take sets from the legendary one and only Andre Agassi. So that's that opportunity where you get to believe in yourself. So then right after that, you know, the months go by, I mean, you know, a guy could put it in some chronological order because Andy, I believe it was the Orange Bowl and the Eddie Herr. It's like, I mean, he was really, really good. But all of a sudden, wow, he's, now he's, you know, winning, he, he's like winning these top junior events. You know, he, I think he was 21. So he's a year older than Shelton who got to the semis. So he's 21 when he wins the US Open. And I know coming back to the visor, Andy, at one point, Andy was like, oh, I was such a, a moron to be wearing that advisor. And I think he was also using some of that uh, stuff that you and I don't need to make your hair stand up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. some gel but uh so anyway uh pete sampers did say to uh roddick or about roddick uh yeah he's really good but i'm, I'm gonna beat him when he counts and shortly after he played him in the u.s open and uh i wouldn't say it was a clinic but and he certainly handled that uh, yeah. i should say sampers really handled andy but coming back to gilbert yeah he he does have that ability i think he's a coach i think that He's one of those coaches that coaches out of love. And I think it's very difficult to coach out of love initially when you're in the grassroots level, you're in the, you're in the trenches coaching, uh, 
you know, you know, 20 kids at a time that have the wrong grip. Um, yeah. Gilbert himself says, I don't do grips, but I think that most of us in tennis, um, and I, you know, I, I've trained coaches for a long time. I've always said, you know, go with respect first and love second. But, uh, when you're working with marquee players, you know, you're coaching her, she's already top five in the world. Um, but a few things about Gilbert's story is that, um, you know, his sister Dana was o- older and a pro, um, the, you know, his father always told him, you're going to be a great player. He was very small, grew late. He had, ended up having a very good body for tennis, you know, long, lean. Uh, another unforced air with this microphone. Tough, tough, you know, Anderson, you're a young pup. You know, I'm almost 70. It's, uh, my fall. I'm not is, far behind you. I might fall out of his chair pretty soon. But, but anyway, uh, you know, he, I, th- I think he went to Arizona. Could be Arizona State, but I would bet Arizona. Comes home and ends up going to uh, Foothills and Tom Chivington's his coach. And he says, it's, you know, the best thing ever happened to him. And then from there he went to Pepperdine and from there, you know, I think one of the inside jokes uh, that he, he lost in the NCAA finals, there's, a, there's been many uh, players that have lost in the finals that did better than the person who beat him in the finals. Um, mm-hmm. But this is what I've got in my notes, uh, you know, reading some things and listening is uh, Gilbert was with her 42 days. You know, before it go off Wednesday, US Open. Joe Paterno, mm-hmm. and I really feel bad about how Joe Paterno's uh, life ended up, the former Penn State coach and yeah. Sandusky and everything, uh, had the outfit go the last mile and all the child abuse it was just awful, horrendous. Um, but Sports Illustrated at one time, the title was Don't Give Joe Paterno 42 Days. That was just the title. And Joe Paterno had 42 days to prepare Penn State to play the University of Miami, Jimmy Johnson. And uh, at that time, I think, uh, you know, what were they calling it? Linebacker U. Um, yeah. So many positive things about Penn State. But And, and Joe, uh, I remember in Key West, I was the only person in his bar. Um, I had to watch that football game. And I just as a kid, a guy from my hometown, Paul Johnson, played for Penn State. I was always a Penn State fan. But... So she wins Washington, she wins Cincinnati, and she wins New York City. So he said, hey, I made it fun. Uh, you know, winning uglies come, come up is that uh, I think Gilbert, you know, there's a lot to be said about winning ugly. I think, you know, you, know, you and I come from a technical background and um, have to tell people over and over again, you know, pretty strokes are just part of it, you know. Technique can be, can be overrated. I mean, you need a lot more than... You know, good looking strokes. But he said, uh, he made no, ma- no major changes. That was a quote. And he said, a little strategy. And then, but he said, you know, I just told her it's all about problem solving. I do think in her, her, her speech from the podium, um, John Wertheim, the, the writer with the New York Times and Sports Illustrated, it's on 60 Minutes. You know, I think he, he was right when he said that he, she uh, planted the seed. He planted the seed for her, um, you know, who hasn't been questioning her forehand? Everybody. Yeah. It's, just, it's, been, yeah. it's been everyday commentary. Um, mm-hmm. With, uh, But I think the relationship, I remember watching Roddick. I, I think Roddick has like one of the best sense of humors. I mean, if you just listen to interviews, I know Vic Braden goes, well, I really don't like Andy's... Uh, sense of humor. I mean, um, I used to say with, uh, you know, Dennis Vandermeer, 
his sense of humor. I like I like his sense of humor as well. But what Dennis would say is, "You don't have a serve," and what Vic would say, "We don't have a serve." You know, he would self-deprecation. He would. Uh, I think that's what good comedians do is they make fun of themselves first, so then they make fun of everybody else. But I can remember what Roddick practicing with Gilbert I said, "Okay, I'll watch this," and I've w- watched them practice many times when they were together. You know, that's the nice thing about being able to be in Miami or be here, be there around the tennis players is he used to just, you know, they'd be hitting and Roddick would just say, are you sure you were four in the world? You know, so I I do think that, um, you know, I mean, I mean, I love listening to him as a commentator. um, Yeah, I do too. With, uh, you know, and her forehand, you know, certainly with our listeners is that if you're char- starting your child out, you'd want to start out with a clean ready position and not have such an extreme grip, but you know, you can work with a player and you can work within a player and certainly 42 days you're working within a player's game. Um, you're not, yeah. um, you know, then also too, is that he went in and he said, she's got a great team and, um, it would take somebody who really knows technique to be really clever and to do it in a, um, you know, very subtle way, making adjustments here, make adjustments there um, to help her with her, her tennis game. I think a Dennis fan years ago, I mean, you know, if someone had uh, the ready positions she has and he would say, okay, let me teach you the drop shot. Let's work on the drop shot. Let's have you have a sneak attack, throw the ball up high and come in and let's have you just play a volley. And so, well, now do this, you know, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't address that. Well, on the unit turn, this is where the angle, the racket face is. And, um, you know, I think someone who's as successful as Dennis, you know, we, I've been making these videos for a long time and in a lot of ways they shouldn't even have to be made. There's too much verbiage because what you have to do is you make the video as a tool of persuasion. Let me show you kid that, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel is a train coming right at you because typically Parents have shopped and bopped and they've, they've heard so many different theories on forehands and backhands. Um, what yeah, else comes to your mind with you Gilbert? Know, well, I think just to go back to a comment you made a little bit ago about, you know, winning ugly and, and uh, you know, getting Coco got over the finish line with, with what she has kind of in that 42 day span. And, you know, we, we doing what we do in dealing with a 12, 13 year old, 10 year old, 17 year old, whatever it is, who's looking to, you know, try to get into the college system in some capacity, whether it's D1 through three or NAI or JUCO, like uh, Brad Gilbert had to play um, or went back and played. Um, you know, we have, we have kind of a, ethical obligation almost to to try to fill in the weaknesses at that point in their lives a lot more than a guy like Gilbert or some of the guys that are out there you know for the 40 weeks a year where they're you know trying to manage the emotions of a player and get a match ready and and uh you know um you know take the role of of uh of that type of coach um so it it's confusing because I think that, you know, we, when we see a 12 year old and, and uh, they're just not even close and, and the parent thinks that it can be done in a similar manner to, to how Gilbert say maneuvered, manipulated Goff 
to having more fun, to, to not worrying about what people think because everybody thinks you're, you're, you're not as good as, as you're currently performing in this tournament. And, uh, I think parents get confused and, and it's hard ethically to not address some of the things we have to address and, and really be a stickler on them, you know, and, and, uh, we don't have that luxury of pouring out a lot of love. <laughs> it, it, uh, it's not a luxury that we're granted often, um, you know, because we, it seldom gets done like that, in, in, especially in this day and time. Well, you know, Philip Farmer, you know Philip Farmer better than I do. Last time I saw Philip, he was at your place uh, working with a junior. And for our listeners, uh, he's coaching Austin Krychek now, and he's, he uh, coached um, the Bryan brothers. And, I mean, he's a really upbeat, he's a motivational guy. I mean, he's going to make you feel like you can walk on water. And that, I mean, there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, um, you know, Austin Krychek has been a better tennis player than he's allowed himself to be for a long time. I mean, um, I mean, he's, you know, it's great that he's just persevered. He's hung in there and he's getting his due now. I mean, certainly it's a nice thing to win a major, but for people outside of tennis, would you just say, yeah, it was number one in the world. You know, I think yeah. it's it, it with Steve Denton, uh, you know, who you and I know really well and worked with, uh, he was number two in the world. And uh, Austin would just smile politely. He would never be the, he would never chirp and say, hey, Denton, you know, you were only number two. I was number one. With, uh, but Philip Farmer, uh, our listeners very quickly, one of our uh, students who you helped me with, Timmy Hurst, the guy had such clean strokes. He played at SMU. I believe he's a banker in Boston now. So Timmy, uh, he lost in the, I think it might've been the consolation finals, but he lost to the cotton bowl and Philip Farber. And I've, his father was a brilliant researcher. I tried to explain to him. I said, uh, Dr. Hurst, uh, Timmy, you got the trophy, but uh, Philip just killed you. He was just in every situation. He was, he, he just missed volleys and overheads. But um, no, I think with Gilbert, uh, common sense, um, I do, I do think to define, I mean, coaching is a human relationship, um, with teaching information transfer. The late, uh, Bobby Curtis was really good friends with the Roddick family. And, you know, you hear the, well, with the, uh, and why did Andy and Brad go their separate ways? And while well, I heard, well, he wanted, you know, lots of money. I can remember the, the, uh, the, British Tennis Federation gave Anico and they gave Gilbert, I don't know, it was something like they gave Gilbert a million dollars a year to coach Murray at one point. It was just a few years back and it was just insiders talking about how much crazy money that was. But um, with, um, with Gilbert, with Andy, um, what Bobby Curtis told me is he wanted Andy to go see someone else on how to volley. Brad goes, we got, now you won the US Open, now we got to teach out of volley. I, I heard that. And uh, with um, mm. with Andy, um, you know, I think if someone, you know, he has children now, if someone could sit down and go, hey, Andy, I remember when I was with you in Boca Raton and uh, it was a young kid by the name of Jason Hazley. Mm-hmm. And he's the same age. Played at, played at LSU. Played at LSU, loved tennis, parents relocated from Canada. And you know, they played several times in little local tournaments, 10, 11, 12 years old. And um, I can remember Andy Roddick coming to our place, 
not for coaching, but we just had like four 12 year olds. Okay. You guys go play around Robin. And, um, you know, we were coaching Hazley, but we weren't coaching Roddick. And I was just thinking that guy is so competitive many times. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with Matt Clore. You know, he's worked with a lot of top players. You know, he says Coco Goss, most competitive player that is in America, and Taylor Fritz is second. And uh, even though if Taylor Fritz doesn't volley very well, he goes, that's okay. I'm just going to hit the ball down your throat anyway. But um, it, it is hard to, um, unless you really have um, early on, um, the parents really get it. You know, they're, they're in the end, they're the ones writing the check and they, they drive their kids from point A to point B to say, let's, let's work on this. And, um, some other notes I have down, uh, on YouTube, it's amazing. The grandmother, uh, both grandmothers taught Coco Golf, but when, um, and you know, the mother was a school teacher for 19 years and she, uh, she stops teaching. And I mean, they put a lot of things on the line and the dad was successful in business, son-in-law, my daughter, what they were doing early on with, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, they really sacrificed, um, mother's a gymnast. I think people all know the story. Father's a basketball player. Um, you know, the father said, you know, you read into it, but he said, well, I think I could have gone further in basketball, but my father wasn't like me. You know, what does he mean by that? Um, I've heard, uh, the father say that he's embarrassed. He thinks back about how hard he worked his daughter. But kids are resilient, and uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of love. Um, that expression from a coaching standpoint is hate me now, love me later. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people don't understand it. But there's the, the fitness clips. There's clips of her, her boxing, playing basketball. I think this is important for our listeners. They studied other families. You know, families versus federations. Families get tennis players down the road. I think this is important to share with Coco Goff. The mother, um, she said, I got to a point where I said, and I told my daughter, off the court, I see you as my daughter. On the court, I see you as a professional. And there's a little thing about like at this place in Boynton Beach, Pompeii Park and uh, Calusa Park. I mean, they, they just work so hard. You know, the, the Fernandez girl from Canada. I mean, the whole family, same thing. With yeah. uh, let's talk about the other coach of uh, the winning player in singles, uh, Gorin. What comes to your mind with Gorin? Um, I loved watching him play. I, I'm fortunate to see him play a few times, you know, up at the opening. Um, unbelievable uh, serve as a coach. I think he, uh, it's surprising to me that. You know, I mean, he has some thick skin because he was such a fiery individual. And uh, at least on the court and, uh, you know, to, to, to take some of the, the tongue lashings that are coming from the court with, with Novak is interesting to me. I mean, it, it's it's just no other sport do we see this. And, and uh, certainly it's getting worse, not better for the players lashing out. I, I always keep waiting for Goran to, to respond and maybe he's just such a class act. He does it in his own way behind the scenes uh, to stand up a little bit for himself. But um, I think, uh, you know, it, he, he certainly, 
I never really would have picked him, you know, coming out of pro tennis. And, you know, his his incredible ending to uh, winning Wimbledon. And, you know, I remember Tylee um, telling a story about that. I don't know if Tylee was there at that that particular Wimbledon or what have you, but I remember him saying how, uh, you know, there was that Gorin was just like it was a vision quest for him when he was there. It was almost surreal. And, um, you know, he was just shadowing in the locker room before the final, you know, just bouncing and shadowing. And, and, uh, but I, I never would have picked him as a player who was going to go out and coach on the tour for some reason. I, I don't know why, why I felt like that, but, um, but, he, he's had an amazing run with Novak and, uh, um, you know, hats off, hats off to him and all those guys, um, you know, to, to be able to endure the, the stuff they have to endure day in and day out, uh, out there. Um, it's, it certainly isn't for any, everybody. I think that people coming from other sports backgrounds, like you have, like I have, it's, it's very strange to see players just assault coaches on the sidelines. Um, it, it's very difficult for me to even begin to think that that's the world that I'm in in tennis because it just didn't happen in any other sport. I mean, it was the reverse. And I don't know. I, I'm not a big fan of it. And uh, I think it's a, a little bit of a cultural decline, uh, a peak at our cultural decline in our sport. Um but, you know, the players paying the, the coach and um, it's, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a version of what happens in junior tennis. I mean, coaches become very, very hesitant to, to tell the truth to the players because even in junior tennis, because they are the ones that are receiving the check. And, you know, you told me this back in the 80s when I was, you know, had hair and really didn't have a clue. And, uh, you know, you, I remember you, you didn't just tell me individually, but you told a hundred of us that, you know, you got a coach like the, the player, like, like they're dependent on your money, not the opposite. And, uh, uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I never pictured even Isvik being, um, that guy, but apparently he is. Yeah. I think with, uh, you know, let's talk about interviews. Uh, he was a great interview. Uh, there's a yeah. video, uh, the journeyman. I'm, maybe you know the name of the young man who he played doubles with. He had, had a video. It's called the. I think it's called I know. The journeyman. Yeah, it is. I have that DVD. And you know, he played doubles with him, and they asked him. He said, "What you think about playing with your partner?" He said, first time, last time, and never again." I mean, he's yeah. a, he's a great he's a great interview. Great sense of humor. Um, so I, I could agree with you on that, that, you know, he's, you know, he, he certainly seemed when he played that he really lacked discipline, you know, keeping, he was so emotional and, you know, he was so close to winning Wimbledon. And then, you know, when he did win Wimbledon, I mean, you know, he basically, I have to go back and look, but I think he got down on his knees after he lost the first two match points against Rafter, you know, kind of put his hands together like he was praying, but, um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think also, I agree with you, a couple of things that you said. The truth, um, there's a lot of great people in tennis that don't know the truth. They don't know forehand from a backhand. They really don't. They've been in the game their whole life. It's like the line from Moneyball. 
I've been in this sports my whole life and I know so little about it. Um, you know, we're, you know, I just think for myself, uh, I could mention many, you know, our pillars or other coaches, but, uh, you know, by the time I was 26 to be trained by Vandermeer, Braden and Van Horn, uh, that's a pretty strong combination that most people don't have any background with people like that. I mean, one thing that, uh, Goran said about, um, Novak, you know, he's one of a kind. And so it, to me, so is Braden, so is Vandermeer and so is Van Horn. You know, he, he's, yeah. uh, is one of a kind. It is, it's like in their whole, everything from their whole life, you know, it comes into being who they are. But anyway, when you teach the truth to someone, okay, they're an intelligent person. Now they understand a lot about the nuts and bolts, but then do they have the guts or, or better yet, are they, can they find a way to be clever enough to deliver the truth? Um, yeah. With uh, for our listeners, I mean, Craig Tiley, this might be the first time someone is listening to this podcast, but Craig was uh, started like you did, David, a student, and then he was a student assistant. And next thing you know, he's doing this, that, and the other thing. But um, I'm sure that, I mean, Craig, uh, in the position he's in now as the CEO of Tennis Australia, that years go by, he might be able to tell you, yeah, I've been at the last 22 Wim- Wimbledons. He, he might have been there with when uh, Goran won the. Um, uh, won the Wimbledon title as a wild card, but you know I think people forget that he also coached Sillage, and um, you know and I think he said, "Hey Sillage, you know." Talk, and, and I remember Federer saying about Sillage, talking about playing because before he changed his serve or after he changed his serve, so he got Sillage to lower the toss and toss into the court more. I mean that lefty serve. You know he worked with Bob Brett, and Bob Brett was a disciple of Harry Hopman, so it's like we're going to repeat, repeat, repeat. So, I mean, a guy like Goran Wimbledon champion, but also to, um, you know, they, they had so much uh, history together. Just think about the, you know, you know, a Croatian and a, and a Serb. I mean, it's just yeah. history, the, just, just the language, so many things. Uh, but what, what Novak said, or excuse me, Goran with just doing a little homework is, uh, he said it's constant stress with, uh, working, coaching Djokovic because he's a perfectionist. You know, he says he gets like a late night call and he goes, I got to hit more backhands tomorrow. I, didn't, I wasn't happy with my backhand today. And, you know, whether that's practice or the match, and, and he goes, every, he says they have a great team and everybody in the team goes, they thought the backhand was just perfect. And then they, but yet he wants to go hit more backhands. And he said, it's the same thing with the serve. Um, you know, uh, Warren Pretorius, who owns Dance Analytics, uh, talks about the team giving him late night calls on finding out where his next opponent serves because they have that type of data with, but one thing uh, I heard um, Goran say that you brought up is that he goes, no, no, there's a lot of yelling and screaming and we have to fight for things. And, you know, so it's not like he's just the one yelling and screaming. I have, uh, you know, witness many things where it's just the it's just the player yelling at the coach. But I think yeah. if it's like intervention, I know you've you know, with young people that you've worked with over the years, you've been involved with some interventions, like, okay, get some key people, all the people in the inner circle and lock the door and no one's leaving. Yeah. And um you know, I don't I don't think junior tennis players have any idea. I mean, it's like I tell you, people really don't know how to get better and and they college the college coaches, I mean, I think they also confuse the junior parents too because it's, 
the recruiting process too is too much like a courtship. It's too much like a romance. And I mean, maybe I'd be the worst college coach in the world because I would just say, hey, kid, you come here. You know, we're not going to let you play for the first year. We're going to rebuild your game. And I think the college coaches walk on eggshells. Um, I think some people, you know, they do that once they, um, well, they once they sign. I think of uh, Chad Burial who was with us and he won a national championship. Um, and there's a girl from Canada and it was a really fun story. She was bad mouthing this coach that I've trained. Um, he's no, he's Frank Hornig. Yeah. He, he teaches mm-hmm. tennis really, really well. You probably remember Frank, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. He got in tennis German. lay German and banker and great tech, great technician. And, uh, until Barry L said, don't say anything. But when she gets here, then when she, when she was there, I said, you know, that guy, Frank Hornig, we talked about. Now we're going to teach tennis. We're going to teach you the same way he teaches. And um, actually, she played. Uh, she played. Not giving her name out, but she played tennis for Brian Shelton. And Brian Shelton uh, told us it was the best, uh, most prepared player he ever had. Um, <laughs> with, um, but with uh, what, what Goran said is that he, you know, he fought the battle. I'm paraphrasing on this, but uh, that he didn't want the box communicating with him. I think that was a mistake with Alcaraz. I mean, it's just like the, the crowd is loud. Anybody's ever been in Arthur Ashe. And, you know, and then they got um, um, Mary, excuse me. Yeah, Mary Jo Fernandez, who speaks Spanish. The, the TV put people put their down, put her down courtside. And now, now they're telling yeah. us in our living rooms at home where the serve's going. And I just yeah. think, are you kidding me? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a brain drain at every level. It's just like, oh, my God. But um, no, yeah, I, you know, you know, like say when everybody in the, and I think it was a, in many ways, a great tribute to Kobe Bryant and everybody's putting the, the shirt on. It says 24 and uh, it just said 24. That didn't mean that he he would necessarily win at that time, but okay. Maybe he'd win, he didn't win the, he didn't win this past US Open, but he's going to win 24 sooner or later. And he's going to have a tribute to Kobe Bryant. You know, there's a lot of NCA teams that'll have T-shirts made and baseball caps made, and uh, I've even uh, know that someone bought one at Marshalls one time. I said, "Where'd you get the shirt?" Well, I bought it at Marshalls because the the losing team, you know, they had the T-shirts made, you know, like yeah. to be the NCA champions. But he did say in uh, one interview that uh, that's something he fought for is not to have so much craziness. And, you know, he said, "I want little or no communication from the box." Um, hmm. you know, Craig O'Shaughnessy, you know, obviously people have to promote and, and, and Craig, uh, promoted his time that he was in the Djokovic camp. But, uh, yeah, I, I read where, uh, Goran said, no, no, we don't need him anymore. You know, and, uh, you know, there can just, you know, and I, I would think that one of the reasons is his promotion, um, with, um, but when any and everybody in the booth, you know, they show the booth over and over again. They're wearing their Izod shirts, nice collared white yeah. white pullover, and uh, Goran is sitting there with no shirt on, arms crossed, and yeah. he's, he's not out of his chair. He's just staring at the court. But again, as a fan, I, I think uh, he certainly puts himself through a lot of stress. I think that it's more difficult to sit there as a as a the spouse or the parent or the coach than it is to actually play. Yeah, I, I like him. I mean, I like even Eastwick just uh, through the years. He has active eyes out there when he's, uh, you know, his his eyes are like a shark at a shipwreck. And yeah. they're just, 
they're just wide and he, he you can tell he's just hyper observant um, but yeah I would I would imagine behind the scenes that he's not keeping his mouth completely shut yeah yeah I think it's family I mean that's uh, mm-hmm. with uh, you know someone's really lucky if they have an uncle like Rafa Nadal yeah you know most people have an uncle that are bringing you candy you know, it's just, things are just the opposite the way they should be. Just, mm-hmm. just the opposite. Um, with, uh, we have a young kid here visiting his grandfather's with him, a great, great guy. And uh, the grandfather brings him good and plenty. And I go, oh my God, you know, my grandfather, Mikhail, he brought me good and plenty. And it's like, uh, who cannot, who can turn uh, good and plenty away? Only uh, the better Yvonne over here in the corner can turn away the sugar. Okay, let's talk about stroke reduction for a minute. Okay. Systems, Alrighty. system, a system is an organized plan. Um, I put it down, uh, you know, there's, there's a system for filming. There's a system for grips. There's a system for this. There's a system for that. And I think that's where tennis coaches and the parents should know, you know, in the football culture, what happens. Um, the, uh, I'll rattle off some things pertaining to grips. Okay. A com- thing comes to mind is a computer sticker. Uh, put a mm-hmm. computer sticker on the grip and Marcy Glidden, who was a teaching pro, pro I trained many, many years ago from Houston. She, uh, I still have it. Uh, she designed it where you, uh, take the, com- the computer label and then the numbers are just right on there. And it's, it's, she, she designed it perfectly. Um, you know, with grips, you know, to take a dime and, and, um, you know, tape it on the racket. Uh, I, I can tell you there's several students over the years that I said, okay, it was like, take three months minimum and we're going to, you know, put a dime. And the next thing you know, you can look at their base knuckles, their index finger where that dime needs to place. And you can seriously see the imprint in their skin, whether it's heads or tails. Um, yeah. That, that's a system, you know, using a pen or a straw where, okay, now we know that you have a, I'll say an Eastern forehand grip. Or you take the the Velcro, um, you can buy this from uh, the company in Dallas, On Court, Off Court. And I don't even know the name of it, um, Grip Placement, Grip Placer. Um, you can use tape. Um, I do think the number system, when you put the computer label on, you know, for me, um, and I didn't learn tennis through osmosis, like a lot of young people first start playing and um but the V, the V is more to me. The V is like, well, here's where the V is for the forehand. Here's where the V is for the backhand. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it's to me, it's amazing. I don't think people are even taught grips, but the number system where there's uh, eight panels. Um, but coming back to uh, one thing I didn't mention about Goran is he said, um, "Here's a, two more points." Is uh, Novak wants all the details. He wants all the details. And he said, don't ever make the mistake of telling him that he can't do something. And, uh, you know, just, to me, that's where, you know, you can't listen to just the court side uh, interviews. Yeah. You, you got to dig. What comes to your mind when you think of grips and, uh, you know, system with grips? I think, I think we're getting further away from it. Um, I think that to me, it begins with, uh, education of the people that are better teaching. And I think that, you know, there's, 
there's not even harmony in that regard in terms of just knowing, okay, what is what is recognized, I mean, as an eastern backhand grip, a continental grip, an eastern forehand, a, a semi-western and a western. And, and I, I think there's still not, we're, we're not close to uh, harmony on that. And if, if the people that are, you know, putting rackets in kids' hands and, and teaching them how to swing at a ball, um, you know, can't really find common ground on that. I mean, it's, it's insanity, really. It's, you know, as you, as you know, you've been at the house where Connor stayed in Allen and uh, Texas, just north of the city here. And they, they had one of the best, still have one of the best football programs in America. Um, their high school program can, can beat many college teams. And, but I used to go watch the, the kids from, you know, fourth grade, third grade, um, at the, at Ford Park out there, and they they'd be training, and so they had a system that those kids were going to play once they got into high school, and that system was being implemented to the youngest kids playing recreational football in the city, and and so by the time they got into their freshman year, or sophomore year in high school, they didn't they it was just second nature, and and tennis can very much be like that. Um, you know, you had a post, I think, a few days back on Facebook about the soccer, um, the education of coaches. Uh, I forget what day it was, but, um, it, you know, it, it, we got to get harmony on it. And, you know, I don't know that the USPTA, USPTR is the answer. Uh, it seems these days that many people, I mean, a majority of people coaching tennis, I can tell you, in the city aren't even USPTA certified. So I don't think that's the answer. Well, it, the, the transition, um, the transition ball as well, the low compression, the ball bounces lower. People won't have extreme grips, but that's not working either. And when that was put forth, they are great training tools, but there is no science. To, okay. This is, there, there's no research. There's no history that, okay, we're going to produce better players because of the, uh, and, and again, they're yeah, great. I, they're great training tools. I mean, you could play with, you play mini tennis, hit soft service line to service line. Um, yeah, I mean, I use I use green dot balls more with it seems like uh, perceived advanced kids for different things. Yeah, no, but, I had, uh, I had uh, some kids yesterday. Uh, same thing, you know. Um, they, they, I didn't even like the sound of it. I wasn't even looking at it. I go, guy, I yell out, I don't even like the sound of that. You know, you put some mm-hmm. guys over there, hundred percent with your feet, fifty percent with a racket, and and uh, Welby Van Horn, they're not playing my song. You know, so yeah, let's get the green dot balls out. Then we go start doing double hits. But I think one thing with grips is ramifications. You know, that's where if someone comes to you and I mean, they're say they're only eight years old and they've been playing with a Western grip. And then you meet with the parents and say, I want you to do this every day is, you know, it's like brushing your teeth is take the racket, put the ball against the racket and rub the against the wall upside down. I should say up and down. So you have a, mm-hmm. you have a curl in the wrist and the, you have a different grip and say, you have to do that every day. And, you know, then also too, is that it can't be instruction destruction where we got to take some, take some serious time, unless it's a rare, rare individual. And it's not going to be an eight year old. Um, that would be just an amazing exception to the rule that they're not going to revert back. Uh, even mm-hmm. kid, even kids that have been schooled from the very beginning, their grip, they're gonna, their grip's going to go underneath, and they have to come back for some cleansing. They have to come back to 
okay, let's let's work on technique. Uh, that pie graph is you never ever stop working on technique. You know, the piece of pie becomes smaller and smaller, but um, you, you tell people all these little routines. We have visitors come and I say, okay, call me in two weeks and get on the phone with your parents. And I said, it won't be able to feel, make you feel bad, but it'll be, you know, just like a, a typewriter, boom, 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 that I'll ask them question after question and this is going to be no. Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Um, with uh, filming system, um, mm-hmm. that's a system is we're going to film on the first day. We're going to film f- three angles. We're going to date the tape. We're going to make sure that you're centered in the viewfinder. Uh, we're going to make sure that, you know, we capture your toss. It's going to be a courtesy feed. It's going to be a predictable feed. We're going to try to make you look good by, for example, giving you that courtesy feed right at waist level, ask you to hit down the line. So you have the longest possible hitting zone, have it be a very slow frequency very little movement. Um, and for us, I mean, that's just, that's a system. That's an organized plan. This is how we have to do it. Then we have to file it. And then that's where the process begins. Um, but that's where I think, you know, with stroke production, um, the system, you have to record how people hit. And, you know, when the players are younger, um, I think the parents are best to be proactive and say, okay, we have to practice this at home. You know, I think a lot of parents yeah. are like, well, I don't, I don't want to be the parent who climbs the fence and, um, you know, not to beat up on parents. I mean, Vic Braden used to say, well, if they can afford their lessons, they're highly intelligent, unless they have a money tree in the backyard, unless they inherit it, social economic functioning levels. But, you know, I think with school, I mean, the parents, you can't trust the PTA or, or excuse me, you can't trust the red brick building. You need to be active with the PTA, the parents, teachers association and, and find out mm-hmm. you know, um, does your kid is your kid in the seventh grade and have a third grade reading level and um, people don't know that in tennis they think well um, you know it's almost like junior a local tenant in our tournaments it's like a group of non-readers you know it's almost like they really they don't even know the alphabet um, coach I worked with me for 15 years uh, Roberto Calla you just say mm-hmm. no, no information um, any thoughts that come to your mind when you think of filming? You already did mention they um, college a college yeah, student could send you film. Yeah, I mean it's funny because you know we have a DK Pearson kid that just went off to college. Uh, DK Pearson, the hungry dog, who you always talked about, and um, you know the the crop that just went out. Um, this kid has sent me video weekly and. <laughs> every stroke perfectly filmed just side angle, but, um, you know, even slow motion did for me. I didn't even need to put it in the app to, and, and I actually, after the second week, I was like, I said, uh, it's so on point because this kid was just really clean. And I said, Hey, it looks great. I said, uh, um, you know, why don't you send me a video of you playing a match? Um, and, and, uh, but you know, I, I think that, the way with filming to me, it, it, it's just, uh, there's just no way around it. You know, I have that TV I set up right on the court every day. And I like that. I know a lot of people, um, the, the iPhone or an iPad is, is easy access to and an iPad certainly better than a phone, but 
you know, the bigger the screen, the more vivid it is. And, and I just think it's more eye opening for everybody. And so to me, not only the filming, but, uh, taking the time to just do it right on the analysis. And, uh, um, you know, as the club is getting renovated here, um, I had to clear out, you know, a lot of things have changed. I can't wait for you to see it. It's almost, almost there. And, um, but I, I had storage areas that are now knocked down and, and in those storage areas, there's probably, I don't know, 300 VHS tapes. And in the old days, 30 years ago, we used to see each kid had their VHS tape and then, you know, the date was on there as to when they were filmed. And so I'm, I'm going back, um, as a project here and putting old VHS tapes in and, and having our students watch them because in my opinion, um, many of those kids were, were more disciplined, um, in regard to everything, the grips, the swings, the, I think that, uh, and again, not to, uh, it's not like the good old days thing. It's just that I think the system then was cleaner. Um, kids, kids didn't, uh, they weren't getting on airplanes every weekend to chase points. They were playing one major zone a month here, and then they'd play hards, clays, indoors, and uh, if they were really good, they'd play Easter Bowl, Orange Bowl. Oh, there's, and, been, so, uh, there's been so many changes. Uh, that's a great idea yeah. to go back with uh, Coach K, at the, the basketball coach who retired recently from Duke, said, oh, yeah, kids today are bigger, stronger, faster, but they're not tougher. Uh, and they're not as, there's not that athletic. I mean, now they're not playing as many sports. Um, you mentioned big screen, uh, up here at the resort, wintergreen, the mountains were, um, you know, we're getting, you know, we have the big screen and we're going to put it down courtside. Um, you're right. The bigger, the better. I, one time was in Japan, actually someone who you started out, um, I think Richard Bodian, part of our network you did the most uh, hard yards or like you heard you say dirty work. It really helped Hubert crash with his strokes. I think, yeah. I think I probably ended up spending the most time with Hubert because uh, then he became a teaching pro and he was in Japan. And so I was over there several times and um, it was amazing. It was like this tennis facility had an auditorium and, you know, the further back the audience is, the larger the screen can be. And mm-hmm. so I had a, you know, translator but I'm critiquing strokes and I'm up on a stage and the player hitting the ball is, is the same size as me. Yeah. You know, a lot of times I do video and I say, this is very distorted. And I just take my hand and I put it right over the video. I go, now you can't even see the player. You know, like that, mm-hmm. dis- that distance from, you know, someone at waist level to knee level, the unknown territory, almost nobody gets the racket below the ball. Almost nobody. Mm-hmm. Braden, almost, you know, the, until the end of his life where he did so much research with the brain is that he always said that was the number one tip number number the number one tip at the end was i come back to this thing about the big screen is that is fake it till you make it act as if it's a powerful tool let the other person make the other person feel like they're going to lose and they start making decisions in the wrong part of their brain so that expression get in their head but anyway when, what when i you were, go, go ahead. ahead when i was going to say when you sent me out to Kodo once to uh you know, have the chance to spend a week out there when Vic was teaching. And, you know, I, I was just grabbing anybody that wanted a lesson, you know, because obviously I didn't work from, I didn't get paid. It was just, so I, there was a kid that was hanging around there and I was teaching him 
into the late hours of the night just to, because, you know, when you, the exposure to, to information was so incredible and then to just try to be able to maneuver it and put it in play. And, and Braden was walking, you know, to his house by the court and he stopped and he, he that was what he said. He said, uh, hey, he's just, it's a great swing. He's just got to get under the ball more. And he said, you're going to find that's the hardest thing to do over your career. Yeah. I'll never forget that. Yeah. But what I did with this uh, group of coaches um, is I had the coach come up with, a, with this huge pointer and then I had the translator um, translate what the coach was saying. And I said, no, no, that's not right. No, no, that's not right. That's not right. Uh, you know, a lot of times when you go in and the coaches are comfortably sitting in their seats and you're giving out information, um, but they actually say, okay, all right, let's get the staff up here and, you know, one at a time. And then what I'll do is hear what you have to say and I'll be translated. And then I'll translate it back. And um, that doesn't, that's not harmony. It's like, okay, let's go through that. But also yeah. DK Pearson story quickly. Uh, so our listeners, Dave and I are at this two-year college, Tyler Junior College, beautiful campus. And we had a curriculum to train tennis teachers. And at one point, the players were not allowed to be on the team. And um, so D DK person, he comes from Iowa and, you know, he, he came there to study tennis, become a tennis teacher and play on the team. And he was a good player, but he wasn't a great player. And I said, well, you have two choices. You can stay, get the degree, learn how to teach tennis and become a really good tennis player, but you won't be able to play on the team. I said, I'm not in charge of the team. I said, it's unfair. It's not right. Um, because the, we had a 15 hour lab and the coach, uh, you know, convinced some of the, uh, administrators that uh, you couldn't do both. You couldn't be on the team and you couldn't be in the program. It was actually Peter Dixon who actually stayed, stayed in that area. He was, he was on the team scholarship in the lineup. So the same coach had gone to uh, from Dodger junior college, UT Tyler, Fred, Fred Niffen, the late Fred Niffen. And obviously you have to give Fred credit because he, he brought that team up and they won many national titles at Tyler junior college. So anyway, um, now Fred, he, he left the junior college and was across town at the school. He was playing NAIA, University of Texas at Tyler. And, um, TK Pearson played the nationals after he was at the two-year school. He went off to another school and he played Peter Dixon, who was on the team that he wasn't allowed to practice with. And he beat him six, three, six, three national tournament. And mm -hmm. I remember his mother calling me up and, um, you know, those are the stories that keep you going. I mean, there's uh, yeah. that psychic income that, uh, you know, and yeah, as you said earlier, people are doing it for their money. They're, they're not going to be a good coach. Sorry. If they're doing it for the money, they're not going to be a good coach. Bottom line. Um, on stroke production, um, you know, we're not really going on the forehand. You must turn your shoulders high, low, high, inside out. But I've written down 10 things. I'm going to guess that there's only one that you might not know. But I'll, so I'll give you that one. Four to one, Vic Edwards. That's a tough one. The rest Say of it again. That's a four to one ratio, Vic Edwards. He, he, the other ones are just like music to your ears, 19.1. Well, four to one. I mean, I know from a fitness standpoint, or, you know, what do you, when you go for, you know, you what do you put in? four times you can lose in, 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 yeah, in that one. 
Yeah, the uh, there's lots of ratios. Perhaps that's you know, 15 minutes on the backboard is equivalent to an hour. But Vic Edwards is a coach Yvonne Gulagong used to. She supposedly had to practice four hours for every set she could play. And yeah, I've heard. You didn't keep track of that. But th- these for our listeners, I mean, this is just uh, the language that you know, David knows backwards and forwards. And so does his staff, 19.1, 360 mm-hmm. divided by eight is 45, 130. Number, I should call these off. Number one, 19.1. Number two, 360 divided by eight equals 45 degrees, um, 130 degrees. Number four, 78, 39, 13. Number five, three to six milliseconds. Number six, approximately 70 milliseconds. Number seven, plus minus IP. Number eight, plus plus, minus minus, minus F. Number nine, plus minus. Um, just on a few of these, uh, I remember meeting with uh, John Embry. Mm-hmm. He just re- retired uh, as a direct, as a CEO of the USPTA. And I said, you know, Mark Twain, I could learn from all 15,000 members of the USPTA, but I said, I don't think there's a handful of people in the whole organization that would know 360 divided by eight equals 45. And that's turning the racket uh, eight times. Mm-hmm. It goes in a full circle. And, you know, when you hear that, you it's, you change the bevel by one de- one panel. It's 45 degrees. I mean, that should get people's attention, especially if you don't know it. But in our, mm-hmm. in our, for our listeners in our world, um, I tell people, I told kids all the time, I diagram a tennis court and go, okay, you, do you know these numbers? And they, if they don't know the numbers, I look at them, I go, I really can't have a conversation with you then. If they don't know the court's 78 feet long, if there's 39 feet to the net, then it's uh, 13, 13 steps, 13 times three. You know, this is a good with a bad. I mean, I, a coach I've trained is at a D3 program and very excited. Nick White has actually been uh, a guest on our podcast. Yeah, nice guy. Spoke to him once. I owe him a phone call, actually. I'm glad you just reminded me. But with, uh, you know, he's at a tournament, somebody that, you know, he's known for years that I coached. And actually, this player has sent some kids here from his neighborhood, so he's doing a very good job teaching in the summer. um, But he's serving and staying back. And, you know, that's just something that would, that's a stroke production, but serve, volley. Serve one, two, three, split step. And if the if junior coach is listening, he said, no, we're, we're not letting anybody serve and stay back. And people say, well, what about when they're 10? No. What about when they're, you know, a girl? I mean, no, 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 no. Um, you know, the, the shape of the swing, the shape of the court, 19.1 degrees, how wide the court is. And you tell someone, well, you move back, you have even less in your swing. We looked at it on film. It's going like a merry-go-round. It's going over 270 degrees. The ball's rotating like a frisbee. Um, you know that really comes back to to Braden. Why do you talk about 130? Well, 130 I mean, degrees. Yeah, it uh, it it was the only area of the court that I felt pretty comfortable in. Uh, this morning, I didn't feel real comfortable in it, but uh, um, you know it. I, I always just like to use the basketball analogy. I mean, you know, you're you got the ball to win the game, or and you, and you have the option on a three pointer or a layup, and all you need is one point. And uh, I mean, I'm taking the layup, and uh, an unattested, you know, it's to me a no brainer. Um, 
And that's why I was really excited when you mentioned Ashlyn uh, Kruger earlier, how I felt like she, it was, it was a match where I felt like that was her intent. Even if she didn't get up there every time, that was her intent to look to take court away. And uh, whether she's being more effective in the yellow zone, which, you know, around the tee or only 30 degrees, but um, or she was getting into the 130 area inside a good volley position. It, um, I, I just think that everything is intertwined in the development of a, a tennis player. And I, um, I think that the reason people don't want to get into that area is because they haven't got into that area. You know, you used to always say people eat at McDonald's because they ate at McDonald's and, and habit is habit. And, um, you know, I, the comment you made earlier about Roddick and, uh, Gilbert splitting and Roddick finding somebody now who, you know, was going to teach him to volley. I mean, the reality if he, he had just systematically approached doubles differently and, and consistently from 12 years old on, um, that conversation may have been a moot point. Maybe, maybe not, but, um, yeah, I think that we're seeing less and less. I, I hope it circles back around. Um, it seems like lately when I watch a lot of women's tennis, it seems like many of the women are going forward more than the men. Um, you know, Mohova the other day, uh, she didn't she didn't execute it well, but uh, she certainly got a a great all court game and, and and looking to go forward. I do think with her, uh, I think I mentioned it before for her listeners is that I think, you know, a little shy and if she could have more time on Arthur Ashe, I mean, Austin Krychek, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's one of his interviews courtside was, uh, I think it was when they won the semis. It was the first time I played on this court. It's definitely a different yeah. court, but the 130 degrees, um, Novak against Mevedev, talking to an old time coach, uh, David Getz from North Dakota, where you're from. And he's talking, yeah. about, talking about athletes. And I actually, when I hear that, well, we don't have enough, you know, we're losing athletes in American tennis. I said, I don't buy into that. I mean, as great as Medvedev it is, I mean, what character, what speed, what fight, uh, he's, he's standing too far back. And I think Djokovic was a 16 out of 18. I mean, he could, he started hitting that slice serve and it was just like a piece of cake to come in. And he had, he had a, it's like he had a nothing volley cross court. I do know that, uh, the TV commentators here in the U.S., uh, it's too positive. They edify the players. I mean, come on, they're great players, you know, all the intangibles, all the character. But, you know, just from that one tennis math, 130, and we get into people, you know, want a review of the information, aggressive error margin from Bill Jacobson, you win two out of three, turns in four out of six, eight out of 12. It's all building blocks. But, you know, do you teach elbow in or do you teach elbow out on the forehand volley? I mean, do you teach a really strong continental grip or do you understand, you know, that most of the top players don't say what they do or do what they say and they don't volley with a continental grip on the forehand side. Um, but mm -hmm. if they, if they do, I mean, I don't know how many times I saw the picture of uh, Johnny Mack. I, I binged uh, for four or five meals, lunch and dinner, and I watched all those macro places and they show um, as you walk into Flushing Meadows, uh, there's a tribute to all the players. And so there, it's a, it's a really nice plaque and it's a, it shows Macro hitting the forehand volley and the, the elbows raised and the racket faces flat. Um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's right there. I mean, you know, that's where once you see it, you always see it, but unfortunately people need to be trained. Um, 
what comes to your mind with three to six milliseconds? I mean, I think I mentioned it before on, uh, I mean, that could be the almost a point of origin for, uh, everything in regard to, and, and then go backward from it. Um, you know, the, 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 the human being, whether it's you or I or fed or anybody, it, uh, that bowls on the strings, that, that small, small, small amount of time that, uh, it's gone before we even feel it. And, um, you know, I think that understanding that one concept for people you would think would really shut down a lot of the inaccurate information that's being given out. But, um, yep. I mean, I, I can't, uh, I, it was in the last week, uh, some, well, some match I was watching and, uh, on TV, the commentator, uh, said they really kept that one on their strings a long time till the player committed and you know so it the general public is is just at the mercy of the mechanic i think and and uh you know the the efforts that you're making with trying to educate the educators is really critical and it just needs to uh it needs to fall on the ears and, and it needs to spread virally um you know, it's, it's funny, fake news, you know, spreads so much quicker than reality. And uh, um, I think that's a little bit of what happens inside of the tennis teaching profession. Um, yeah, r- rumors seems more, like fake r- news. For, I like that. Go fake, ahead. fake news, reality. R- rumors more exciting, in fact. Yeah. Um, I think with the parents, uh, you know, Roger Federer said it quite well. I was fortunate to have the right coach at the right time, uh, a family, the, the I've worked with for now almost 10 years, if not 10 years. And um, their youngest son is a really good tennis player. And after they came to see me, they never went to a pro or a program. They did it on their own. And um, anyway, he's being recruited. And I talked to John Roddick and his older brother. And, um, you know, John Roddick is a great coach. I mean, with, uh, you know, he's got the juice. If anybody ever saw him play, I mean, I mentioned, uh, I had talked to him in a while. It's not like I really know him that well, but I did a little work for the academy. But when I was there, he was with his brother and at that time, Jimmy Connors. And But he recently had uh, one of our students, uh, trainees, associates, Gary Needleman was his assistant. The tennis world is a small place. There's always these connections. Um, but I mean, he's a, he would be excellent for the player that is um, they're recruiting because he went through all the ready position, turn, shadow swing, you know, hit off a cone, mm-hmm. tracer swing against the, the mirror and did it for years. And they just know that, okay, I, I have to stay with this. I don't need to change my strokes, but okay, I'm going to be in this environment and be part of this culture. Um, you know, most junior tennis players, they have no idea what even takes place in a locker room. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's, and it's a, just a different world. Um, how about the aftershock? How about the 70 milliseconds? That leads to some confusion. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, registering in the brain and, and, uh, um, you know, the, the human, I mean, it, again, I think everything, whether it's the, 
70 milliseconds to three to six milliseconds, I think to me, it goes back to the, to earlier what we talked about with filming and, uh, getting it on a big screen and just stopping people and showing them where things are when they, where they really are when they versus where they think they are and when things are happening. And, um, you know, it, perception is reality for people. Uh, their perception is their reality. And uh, I think as, as you play this sport and you just try to figure it out, you know, it's a very, very, very difficult sport to piece together. And if you, you know, you're almost better off doing it that way though, than listening to the myths and, um, because the brain, the brain's tricky. I mean, it's just, it's, everything is counterintuitive in this sport to the brain. And, uh, I think that the more that somebody understands what is happening, that the better chance they have to, uh, remedy their situation, whether it's a, a tactical or technical flaw. And yeah. I mean, I, I I don't think there's enough knowledge. Um, I don't, I, I, I haven't been aware of things, you know, that take the 10 points that you've just given. I, I they should be on the USPTA exam. Yeah. Uh, and they're not, and well, that, there's that nothing really, like that. That reminds me, I was just asked by someone, they want a copy of the, the United States Tennis Academy, the exam that Vic Braden had. So I have all, all sorts of things in files, but they're not uh, digital. Um, your serve, plus, minus, or IP, what was your serve? A young my Dave serve. Anderson, your best days. My, my serve is IP for sure. In play, um, he's in play, everybody. Plus is strong, minus is weak, is in play. That's just Jacobson's language. So, you yeah, know. I mean, it's, it's definitely uh, it's definitely not a plus. Um my second serve is definitely a minus and my first serve is basically in play. And, you know, when you talked about Robert Seguso, Robbie, and I remember, you know, he had retired at that point for how long he'd been retired a year, maybe a year and a half. He had Not very long. A yet. little out, yeah, out of shape. But I remember I was at four, three with him at one time, um, down at the mission Bay courts and, and on the changeover, I was talking smack to him and, and you know he referenced. He goes, you, he goes, you're you're in top gear. He goes, I, I've got three more gears to go up. <laughs> and he and he said, your your first serve is worse than my second serve by ten miles an hour. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, but he was right. Yeah, yeah there's no doubt about it. And uh, but I think that again, going back to systems with these points you're bringing up here. Um, having having video analysis of match play with stats um, is, is the only way to validate it. And uh, because it's just, people just can't swallow the pill anymore in terms of hearing criticism, uh, just straight out of the mouth. I mean, opinionated, even if it's accurate, they, they, it seems like everything has to be really, really laid out. Uh, I've said it before, uh, subtle doesn't seem to, to work in this day and time, you, you almost have to hit them over the head. Well, the level of parenting—I hate to say it—but the level of parenting's gone down. It's like, well, okay, my my parents did a better job than I did. I mean, you know, just you know, 
that that's straight across the board. Sorry, mom and dad, but it's not pointing a finger at a certain person. But that's and again, it adds up. It's society. You and Robbie Seguzo at the Net Post. Uh, it was good theater. I was upstate New York. It was with my mother years ago, and uh, a couple of friends of mine from the area down in Connecticut. You know, I said, "Hey, that's and I timed my trip up north to go to the Sampras Fetter match in Madison Square Garden." And, you know, yeah. Sanders hadn't played in a long time. And I mean, it, it generated lots of money. And I know, I know that, that both players had do- donated lots of money. I think that's where, uh, you know, anyway, there was a point where, uh, Federer just hits four aces. So it was, it was good theater, not good tennis. Um, there is a, a situation with trash talking with, where Pete Sampras, uh, you know, it shouldn't have been in Andre's book about, you know, Pete being cheap and this and that. And, and uh, Gilbert was in on that, and it was just not done well. And so, you know, it comes out, and they're playing an EXO, and Fed and Nadal, you can look at it on YouTube. And uh, what Pete should have said, hey, Pete, what you should have said, hey, Andre, I gave $100,000 to your foundation. Um, mm-hmm. so they were way out of line doing that. But we all make mistakes. Um, so, yeah, the, it comes down to Jacobson with, you know, the – the a winner is a plus plus unforced air is a minus minus. I think we should call it a loser, not an unforced air. Uh, you hit 19 losers. Um, that's where it's scary, you know, where crummy plays crummy or everyone's heard that and crummy doesn't know they're crummy, but they win. Um, but just how the point ends, it does come down to stroke production. Why, why it, you know, why, 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 um, why did you miss? Then at the end, you know, do people know their differential? What's what's their plus minus? Go ahead. What I started doing uh, a few years back, and I I did it last week. I hadn't, you know, you you get something good and then you kind of forget about it as a coach. And then it resurfaces in your brain suddenly. And so I've had like two or three kids watch a match or a set and, and I'll put three ball hoppers out there, you know, little stand up ball hoppers and they'll just chart the set by, one of them is putting uh, a ball in the unforced air hopper. The other one is putting the ball in the forced air hopper and the other one's putting the ball in the winter hopper. And then that's how they chart the set. And the players just come, you know, on the, at the end of the match and, and look at the hoppers and um, <laughs> it pretty much tells the tale right there. Oh, that's a great, uh, that's a great idea. Say it one more time. Well, we just, we take three empty ball hoppers or you could use a little buckets or whatever. And, and I have, uh, you know, kids that are putting, they're, they're watching, charting a match by putting a ball in the appropriate hopper. One of them's just labeled unforced airs. The other one's forced air. And then the other hopper is the winner hopper. And so they just drop a ball whenever, you know, at the end of the point in one of those hoppers. And, and at the end of the match, it, the, the 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 hoppers tell the tale very very quickly and uh you know you can do it for each side and uh yeah it's a fun way to do it it, it illustrates it really well and i i don't think people you know you know forced air category is such a separator i think forcing shots no that's a great idea harry Altman used to do that he would take 10 one dollar bills and you know when you make an unforced air one bill goes to his left hand now that he's got six, uh, six bills in his left hand and then four in his right hand. And they mm-hmm. play, they played until one player won all 10 points. Um, uh, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think with stroke production, say Madison Keys, you know, Mark Novak or Mark, yeah, Mark Novak, he does a great job with the recovery and certain aspects. And, you know, he has all sorts of things on the internet. And, you know, he comes out and says, well, Madison Keys, if you want a big backswing on the forehand, you can have a big backswing. You want a short backswing. And he's not wrong because the way the way the brain is programmed. Um, now, um, if I walk by Bjorn Frantangelo, I would just be a familiar face. I'd have to say, hey, Bjorn, remember me? I mean, but I saw him in juniors and, you know, I, my son Connor played against him, played doubles with him. And I, I just watched him grow up in tennis. He's a kid from Pittsburgh who went to Naples and, you know, they're scheduled to be married and, and, uh, you know, he's, he's coaching her now. And but then the question is, okay. I mean, she had a great U S open. I mean, she can hit a serve. She, she can strike that forehand. Um, but that's where for the listeners, if mean, if, um, you know, it's a, it's a different call now. I mean, she's been top 20 for a long time, but if a player had those technical mistakes, um, and they're, they're in their formative years, they should go back and, and take some time off from tournaments and work on form. Like say with Andy Roddick, I mean, I don't like to think of Andy, you know, you say, you know, it's a uh, one grand slam wonder or whatever it is, but now it's not fair. I'm not trying to correct saying majors, not grand slams because a grand slam is four in a row, but not only did he win a major, but he was number one in the world. And for how long he was a number one American, he won Davis cup. Um, but if you turn the clock back, you could ask an Andy Roddick, would you want to have your child you know, learn to volley the way you learned to volley? And it's not a matter of placing blame. I mean, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame. There's a reason he's in the Hall of Fame. And then, but when he talks on TV and he's on TV on a regular basis now, um, you can't really, in a lot of ways, put numbers to what he's saying, you know, as far as, well, the angle of the racket face, the grip, um, the size of the backswing, uh, that the parents should just need to, they just need to know, and the juniors as well as Joe Public, when you're watching pro tennis, you're not, watching developmental tennis and you're not listening to developmental tennis either. I got another list here for you. Three point landing. What do you got? Well, I think that, I mean, I I don't know if the listeners are aware of what it is, but yeah, just to find somebody. Yeah. You know, when somebody begins to swing and taking the, the step out and, you know, the, three things really dropping in sync, you know, the, the racket had the rear end and, and you take your step out and, and into a bowl. And, um, you know, going back to Braden, uh, people just don't get under the ball and, um, synchronizing the body and the racket, um, you know, just to maximize the swing, maximize the kinetic chain. Um, I think that I was showing some people this the other day, uh, with Alcaraz, how uh, you know, and it, it was just to show that he was twisting upward, lifting, rotating, elevating, and showing in the knees because it's it's in this even in slow motion the first time through they missed it. And I said, just I put a you know on the TV screen, I just took a marker and just put a dot where his knee was, and then showed it a few frames later and showed him where his knee was, and uh, I mean. In essence, it was still the three-point landing. It was it was really a semi-open stance, but um, 
you know, the, the, the racket face falling and the body falling, um, were still occurring, even though the ball was hit at, you know, really a rib level, you know, right above the midsection. And, but those things still occurred on that ball. And I, I think that, uh, again, I'd say it's a pretty misunderstood part of the swing. Um, people don't get their body and racket synchronized that well. Uh, we just had a physician here, uh, and I like to ask physicians, you know, how, how old were you when you, you know, started to get a significant paycheck? You know, you know, they're not saying in their 20s. They're saying, oh, they're, they're well into their 30s generally. But I told them, mm-hmm. you know, I used to orchestrate a 15-hour lab, a weekly lab, and we would just practice tennis teaching. Now, uh, we had this, we had dedicated one or two podcasts to Jim Lair, and then we interviewed Jim. And I certainly was happy that Jim was pleased with um, the podcast we had, you know, going back to his work. And, you know, it's been years since he's done what he used to do, running camps and what the ideas for mental toughness. Um, A couple of things with Alcaraz, when you see him invert the racket head, people have to understand when you're looking at YouTube clips, you're looking at one shot. And, you know, does he do that on the return? Does he do that on a conventional volley? Does he do that when he's hitting the ball on the rise? When he has extra time and they avert the racket head, and there's been so many players before him that do that, they're adding a segment. And it increases racket head speed, and it helps them keep the racket on the same side of their body. Um, but, you know, you say, well, we're going to start teaching eight-year-olds to do what we saw in a YouTube clip. Very dangerous and very wrong. Um, we have the three-point landing, I think, of Medvedev, today or Jimmy Connors years ago, get behind the ball, get behind the ball and get set. Uh, review, people have asked for review on stroke production, 3-8 system of balance. What do you got? Yeah, well, I mean, Welby Van Horn, heel, hips, head. Um, you know, it, from an athletic standpoint, an athlete has to first master static balance before they can really um, master dynamic balance where the body's under control in the, in the full run and, um, static balance, uh, is becoming less and less a part of junior tennis programs in America. Um, I would say it's next to instinct. Yeah. And static balance listeners means you stand in one place. Mom and dad put up some full length mirrors and have your kid. They brush your teeth hopefully three times yeah. a day, but at least twice. So they leave the house in the morning before they go to bed at night. They're in front of a mirror for a few minutes brain switched on. Um, but yet yeah, you're, you're hitting the ball really well. If your swing allows you to stay on balance, most kids have such horrific swings. They can't stay on balance. A power yeah. line on the serve. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you know, we were talking about Chilich earlier and how even Eastwick impacted him. Um, that, I love that side by side footage they showed. I think it was, uh, I can't remember where, where I pulled it off of. And yeah, I remember showing that. Issue. Yeah, it was the arc on uh, the serve toss and, and how it was forward and, and rat- radically changed, obviously, after Chilich uh, won the U.S. Open or before he won it. And um, anyways, I I think that, you know, you can, you can go back to a lot of things, I think, uh, the, the power line on the serve is critical. Um, it 
you know, the forward line that a body achieves that, that so many kids that are playing tennis, say are playing tournaments too prematurely. Um, they're chasing points too early. They start out of, uh, uh, a ne- they start a negative habit at a very, very early age of getting cheap spin, bringing the toss way to the left, not bringing the toss out in front. And, uh, you know, it sticks with them forever. And then it's compounded by the fact that, you know, nobody is serving and going forward. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, even in the pro game, there's, there's, there's quite a deficiency in it. I feel, um, you know, there's obviously people that just get it out there in front and, and out to the side of them a little bit and, and are launching missiles. But, um, yeah, I, no, you know, I, I go ahead. Well, thanks for mentioning that with Silich. Uh, I remember showing that. Uh, it's a great clip of his old serve and his new serve. The power line, what's, what's at the end of the power line, the serve. Uh, Anderson, now I'm going to have to start being nice to you here. I mean, now I know why people really like listening to you. I love that comment, cheap spin. Because the listeners, when you know, you, a right-hander tosses way over their head. They, uh, you know, they get some spin, the, 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 the height of the, Ball, the trajectory goes higher and the ball bounces higher, but they don't have any speed. Um, the, uh, here's one. Uh, actually, uh, I could ask you about Paul Wardlove. He's scheduled to meet, be with us next. Um, you know, I mentioned that his name to the listers. Um, but I, it's tough to ask people during the U.S. Open to take some time and uh, be on a podcast because there's so much great tennis going on. The um, but one thing you also mentioned uh, uh, about competition, the Russians, for the most part, you got to play 3,000 hours before you play. Get 3,000 hours of practice in before you play. And, yeah. Um, that's where the USDA, and again, a lot of great people, a lot of great causes, a lot of great effort. But that whole theme, you know, it's not learn to play, it's play to learn. Um, that whole USDA contingency watching the Davis Cup Sorry, fellas, but there are mostly guys there. Just pick on the guys, I can pick on the gals. But if you could turn the clock back and go, well, yeah, you know, not not today. We're not saying, okay, TFO's got to go back to the drawing board. Um, the South African, uh, Wayne Ferreira, has done a great job by just getting him off the cell phone. But um, yeah. Uh, the, I remember telling Paul Roder with the USTA that the Sam Queers of the future don't need to have the same grip on the backhand ball that Sam Query had. Uh, but yeah, something has to be done. American tennis. Uh, inside out, what comes to your mind? Could you repeat that, Steve? I couldn't hear it. In- inside out. Inside out. Inside out. Um, I mean, what comes to my mind is where the racket path on great swings goes from, you know, high, low, high, inside out. I mean, when, when, it, when a swing falls, um, you know, dropping to the inside slot of the body and then as the player rotates and, and lifts and, you know, getting way out from their body, way out to the right. I think that common term that I think people use now in today's junior tennis world jargon is uh, spacing. You know, you always hear about the word spacing, and uh, I think that many times that word is used in, and uh, ineffectively because the person is actually swinging outside in. 
and it, it doesn't really have to do with the the footwork placement of the, the athlete, but the, the swing path is going uh, outside in. Um, you know, I think in the junior tennis world as well, when you say inside out, it, it people only have the correlation between that and moving far to the left to hit a uh, forehand. Um, that 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 I think is the the, the more common way that people associate the, the term inside out. But uh, um, yeah, let me yeah. Make, let me make a couple comments on that. Inside out uh, reason to mention Paul Wardlaw is, is that he's made a great, great contribution to tennis, talking about directionals. And now it seems like everyone's forehand, forehand, forehand. Years ago, we used to do an exercise. Okay, play this set. You can only hit forehands. And mm-hmm. uh, we don't do it anymore because that's all people do anyway. Is too many, a vast majority of kids are just looking to hit forehands. With inside out used to be a technical term that means to swing from close to your body. You know, you think about an Agassi or Jim Courier at one point, maybe it still is Jim Courier's company uh, was called inside out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, now then what's come come of that, it went from a technical term to a technical term, and now it's inside, inside, outside, inside. I mean, it's like, come on. It's, uh, it's, it's adds to confusion, I think. Um, yeah. Contact point. We have a boy visiting here who has just a little bit of an extreme grip on the backhand side. Therefore, the racket head um, is not aligned to the target. And sometimes he leans back to compensate. Sometimes he leads with his elbow or a combination of both. Um, mentioned Jim Lair, you know, he had that drill where you'd rally and you would say where the contact point is. Um, what percentage of juniors do you think have a contact point that's above their waist, rib cage, or at shoulder level? Which one do you, would you pick as, uh, the, the, uh, uh, most prevalent? I mean, yeah. I mean, from what I see, um, not necessarily just juniors I work with in, on a day in and day out basis. But, uh, I would say that, you know, in the red zone in neutral positions, um, people are, you know, somewhere, somewhere in the chest and above. And, uh, um, sometimes it's just a byproduct of the grip and they feel like the racket face is easier to get vertical, you know, up there, but, uh, sometimes it's just poor footwork. Um, but, uh, yeah, not, not, not often waist level people yeah. aren't striking in, in, in the strike zone. I would say, you know, sadly shoulder is one rib cage is two and waist is three. Mm-hmm. Um, especially on the forehand side with, yeah. uh, what comes to your mind and share with the listeners on hitting zone. Hitting zone. Um, I would say two things on it that from day in and day out what i see is people are closer on they they have a you know they're they're closer on their 12 to 18 inches on the hitting zone on the back end um especially when they uh you know even kids outside of that have grown up outside of our system they uh they track better on that side um as a whole and and obviously they tend to play more balls around waist level too side they're taking the ball off of the court on the way up more um, rather than letting the ball peak and drop and um, the hitting zone zone on the forehand side um, overall I think is is much less for for people Um, 
Yeah, so I where, think it uh, it's reduced. It's where you know the listeners are the racket face is vertical. It's lined up to the hit. Strings facing the target. You know, kids, kids shadow swing. Say, okay, if you could, could if you could go eighteen inches, the width of your shoulders. You know, Andy Fitzell. Um, you know, you know, people are lucky. You know, you'll say they're lucky if they get six inches. Uh, but it's so so important. Um, what comes to your mind to share with the listeners in reinforcing these uh, concepts? Swing shape mm-hmm. and court shape. What comes to your mind? Well, it goes back to the earlier uh, kind of ten points of dimensions of the court, and um, you know, the nineteen degrees is just a sliver. It's just a it's a tiny little space to fit the ball in, really. And uh, so when you're you're when you're red zone baseline to baseline, I mean, nothing exciting. Uh, the, the racket's got to match it, and you know, keeping the racket up high at the beginning, letting it fall in that circle really matches the court. And, um, you know, the, the angular finish that people perceive, I mean, it, um, you know, where the pulling, so to speak, that they see, especially on forehands, um, you know, it's with world-class players, it's so much deceleration with the racket at the end and recovering and, uh, but yeah, it, 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 it's, it's interesting how, you know, people are, are just, there's just like, we've talked about it many times. The, the backhand side is, is just never really the debate point with it because, you know, we could stop many, many players and they're going to have a, a very similar look, even, you know, in the world-class play. And, um, you know, you look at the, the tracking motions on them, but the forehand side, uh, is where it tends to get a little goofy with people. But, yeah, the, the swing's got to match the court, and um, the, the best it can, it doesn't, you know, you can learn to hit a ball anyway, but if you want to be, if you want to be able to put it on a dime under pressure and, and the circular swing matches the uh, narrow dimensions of the court. How old are your grandsons? Six and? Almost six and almost four, yeah. Vinny and? Yeah. Benny and Bodie, Bo. Benny and Bo. So, uh, you know, the, the toys listeners where uh, you get three spaces and one is for the circle, one's for the rectangle, one's for the square. And, um, you know, young, young kids can figure that out. Uh, yeah, the shape of the swing needs to match the shape of the court. You already mentioned this one I had written down. Kids are smart. If you ask them, go, hey, stop and think about it a little bit. Should we teach you what's happening or what's happened? And, you know, again, kids are smart. I ask that question quite often and they get it right. Yeah. So let's teach mm-hmm. you what's happening. The, the contact point, the, the, that's uh, the moment of truth. Strings don't lie. Uh, why don't you expand upon this? Um, comes to your mind, uh, stroke production related power sources and control mechanisms. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you'd mentioned Madison Keys with power sources. I mean, it, Alcaraz with the, the racket head at the beginning of the forehand and, and adding segments to the kinetic chain. And I think Keys is a great example of, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, she's, she's creating racket speed. I mean, her ball speed has matched many of the players on the ATP tour, uh, for years now. But it's when it comes to control mechanism, it, it isn't there. And it isn't there for, unfortunately, when she both wants it. 
and she's cracked at some big moments and, and, and inevitably that side really does tend to crack. And, uh, much like Goss, um, forehand, I wouldn't even say her current flaw is really a, a power source for, her. um, but, uh, you know, people want to learn to hit the ball with the bigger body parts, the, the least amount of moving parts. And, you know, keep the wrist fixed and, and, and really learn to coil the body and use the big body parts, the, the shoulders, the, the lower body. And, uh, you know, so you can not only hit it big, but you can hit it big to a target and, and that, that it's got a better chance to hold up under pressure. Um, you know, it's a lot of people hit a tennis ball like, you know, needing, uh, you, you can drink a Red Bull for an instant boost of energy and, um, but it just won't sustain. And that's, that's how a lot of people seem to hit a tennis ball. Um, that's where fitness is so key. I mean, to hit the ball well, you, you, you've got to be fit. Um, you've got to be able to, you got to be able to do the right thing with the body over and over and over. And uh, so, you know, a, a player that's going to learn great strokes, they, they, they also better put their time into the fitness. Yeah, I'd like to say a little kid, say Vinny, six years old, you get him to hit the forehand really well. He may spin in a full circle because, you know, he's not going not to be strong enough. Uh, Braden used to say that, have a kid, wait, wait, wait. Don't swing until I say swing. And then that downswing, okay, now you're riding the Ferris wheel. And they go mm-hmm. up and their, their body spins out. But, you know, power and control listeners are really one and the same. You know, the ball doesn't know it's being hit by a forehand or backhand. So on the forehand side, if someone can uh, use the left arm or righty, as a reactive break, you know, um, one of the coaches worked with you for, who's worked with you forever, Dion Krupe. Uh, you know, I just remember all these little things and Krupe, uh, Dion didn't want to let kids hit with their jacket open. And one reason was, is their jacket goes flying, you know, so their forehand and their left arm pulls out. They think they can hit the ball. They're certainly exerting more energy. And they think they can hit the ball harder, but they can actually, if they could decelerate the front side, same thing with uh, the serve, people misinterpret, you know, the elbow, say if it's a right hand or the left elbow is going to come down eventually and help people propel themselves going forward. But initially the left arm has to stay up. Um, yeah. So it's really interesting to easy power, you know, you know, getting young people, and that's, that's really interesting about, you know, so many great players, you know, their parents played or their mom or dad was a teaching pro and they started at a really young age where they didn't have any muscles. And they, but that, I think, again, so many kids just hang out of the racket so tight and um, just, yeah, they don't let the racket free fall. They don't work with gravity. Um, with, I got one exercise I need to do. Go through, go through this fast. But here's a question for you: We have immersion camps up here in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, who do you think should come to our immersion camps? Uh, who, who should priority number one? Parents or players? Well, uh, depends. Yeah, I mean, for an immersion camp, I mean you know, it could, you could argue you could have separate ones for each. Yeah. Or they could, uh, they, could they could come together. I'm just, I'm just teasing, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, someone who uh, you, you've got to know really well, um, uh, uh, Holt and his, uh, father, George, they brought their young son, Mason. And then I got to meet the twins and the mom and the family is, uh, yeah, yeah. with a uh, great family, but, uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, 
Yeah, tell Holt he needs to come for immersion camp. The, the kids can stay home. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Yeah, young- yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, it. I think every, you, you know, you've said it before, every every situation, such a case study. I mean, um, and in some in some cases, uh, I, I need more parental involvement. And um, I think it, even in even in the course of training the same family over the over ten years, I think it changes the dynamic. And you know, it it takes a team for sure. To me, that 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 team has to be intact. But uh, I think both parental education. I, I've said it for decades that I thought the USGA could send a a really straight shooting guy like Jim Lair around to all the cities and, and really just have a parent education program in all the major cities and, and uh, you know, on how to, how to really help navigate. I mean, basically right out of this parent player coach handbook. Oh, he's, um, he's got 17 books. Um, I have, as you know, you were there so many, th- so many times, if not all the times um, with Jim Lair um, I, I guess you were there most of the time. So I was a little bit older and, and uh, did this or that with him on the road, but you got to talk about stroke production in gym on these pri- mm-hmm. private educational tapes. We would run 10 hour. Actually, they weren't 10 hour. They were like 25 hour. Actually, I have to stop and think about that, but be, yeah, it was all weekend long. And, and uh, it's just, my thinking has changed because now when you have a workshop with people, you're, you're lucky to go 10 hours versus 25. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, we have all sorts of private tapes. Jim Lair, you won't be mentally tough if you are number one, you don't have strokes that hold up under, under pressure. And two, you're not physically fit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Frank Giampaolo, who spent time with Vic Braden, uh, you know, he was down the road and he, um, he t- you know, he still teaches tennis in Orange County. He's made major contributions to the game. And I read his book, which I would recommend to parents, but I asked, asked Frank about it. I said, as a fellow Bradenite, uh, what would Uncle Vic think of the book? You don't mention strokes. And he told me, well, people wouldn't read the book. Or, you know, you, you do create controversy when you talk about strokes at teachers' conferences. And I used to be a junkie at those tennis teachers' conferences, just there all the time. And and uh, with uh, everybody is pretentious. I shouldn't say everybody. Almost everybody is pretentious that we, we know strokes. Um, but Holt Vaughn, uh, for our listeners, great guy. He's going to quit Apple and come and work for Great Base. He's going to be our number one fundraiser. And but no, seriously, a guy <laughs> like that, our listeners. I mean, he's just upbeat. He's just pumped. You know, he's like the Brian brothers. He's excited about breakfast. You you need to have people like that. But I just wonder if uh, you could have him be around uh, crummy strokes for a while. If he'd uh, he'd smile a little bit less, but. Uh, no, I think that. Yeah, no, he's he's a he's a world class parent. He uh, he was actually out there this morning, you know, playing Kayla, who has come down and spent time with you. Um, he was out there battling. They were at five four, and then I broke it up so I could jump in and play him in doubles. Um, I should have let him finish it out, but I had time constraints and needed to get get a little ego boost. For the, um, for the listeners, uh, Holt played tennis at Davidson, became a good tennis player. And, but then he found out years later that there was a few kids from East Texas and he, he found out what the secret was is they were taught, they were taught technique. Um, so he has that, that experience. Um, and again, for our listeners, um, 
if you're a tennis parent going down the road for the first time, you're going down the road for the first time. Uh, I know that all experiences add up uh, for, for myself. Um, you know, I was, I you know, tell people I feel like I was born in jackocracy. My father was a volunteer coach. He was a civil engineer, but, uh, you know, brothers that did this and that. And um, it's really interesting with, uh, like, Jay Djokovic. He's a first-time tennis player from his family. You know, you know, but they did. They lived at the bottom of a ski mountain. The parents made pancakes in the morning and pizza at night. And uh, with the sacrifices they've made and then, you know, the history of uh, – what he endured personally, his family, the country is just amazing. Um, yeah. With uh, let me read this off uh, systems. Yep. One system that we use, and I do think that uh, Uncle Vic would understand this. The late Vic Braden. Uh, some people think, oh, we're one dimensional. It's just Vic Braden, but we say, okay, Vic's a, a Christmas tree, and here are all the ornaments. Um, but. Don Leary was through a teaching pro by the name of Mike Duncan that I was fortunate mm-hmm. enough to spend time with years ago. So he, he worked for Don Leary. So I said, okay, I'm showing up. It was in Sarasota and I went through a Don Leary camp. So his book is called teaching pro. You can get a copy of it. These images I'm going to give you. Now people have asked me to do this and we can type this up and put it on our great base tennis Facebook. But here are some images for the serve. Uh, the hammer is the grip. We do a hammer grip. I was telling a kid today, you got a hammer grip on the back end. All four fingers are together. Pancho mm-hmm. Gonzalez had a hammer grip, a uh, great player uh, and a player with finesse after that powerful serve of his. But um, it's just tap your hand like a hammer. Uh, stand Your stance is like a skateboard. Vandermeer used to have bathroom scale one, bathroom scale two on the tennis court. You can start with your weight forward. You tr- shift your weight back. Um Mashed potato. Now you can go back and rock on your back foot like uh, Pete Sampras. Um, Harold Salmon, great player. Um, he's a Rudy. Five foot nothing, hundred nothing. He was five in the world. Uh, I did a made a video for his grandson, and you know the mashed potato. You come up in the ball of the foot. He said uh, no one does that, and I said, well, I wouldn't say no one, but. When Sampos went back on his heel, he eventually came on that front foot. You know, you can't turn your 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 body in if you don't come. Eventually, come on that front foot. Uh, mm-hmm. Cup the racket. We later emphasize, uh, you know, the football throwing position, where your arms at a ninety degree angle and your hands in a supinated position. But if you look at players, uh, Rayonich is someone uh, really exaggerated that. Um, mm-hmm. With uh, his coach, uh, childhood coach, Casey Curtis, was a guest on our podcast. Elvis Presley, we do a drill. It's a Braden drill, but we gave it the name, the Elvis. Like you have the guitar and it's the Elvis pelvis. You're facing forward and you're turning. But these are all images. And uh, one time, you know, I get through the list and I had a woman say to me, how do kids remember that? And I, this was in the States. And I said to the woman, I said, well, the young boy just went through that with your child. He's German. He's doing it in another language. Turn like a baseball pitcher, have alligator arms, uh, T-Rex, the dinosaur, uh, hang on to the ball like a glass of water, and then you make the letter J. Now, sometimes with these images, we throw the letter J right out the window because people are a little too fancy when they think cursive. Uh, mm-hmm. Gary Alpert, longtime uh, associate, I know he's starting to work with you soon. Uh, this comes from his son. His son was visiting you know, 20 years ago, maybe. 
uh, 10 years ago. And he said the toss is like being at the zoo and feeding a giraffe a piece of bread. Uh, Virginia Wade, don't let go of the ball until you get past shoulder level. Um, you know, tennis is a science, but it's an art. And that's where to be a lifelong learner, you hang in there for all the buzzwords, all the phrases. And, and then if you like it, you got to repeat it and make it a story. So it then becomes part of your treasure chest. The Cobra, you know, Vic Braden, the wrinkle on your wrist. It's on the inside when you're hitting forehands and backhands, but it's on the outside when you're hitting serves. We stopped doing this because Jeff Lewis said to, and I said, okay, Jeff, I agree. You make a good point. Dennis Vanderman used to say, pretend you're stirring paint. You know, when people buy paint and you have that paint bucket and it comes with a stick and you slowly stir the paint. I mean, that was a great uh, image and a great tip for the serve. But Jeff said, well, the problem is, is they don't know where the bucket is. They don't know where they, they don't know where the, the bucket of paint is. They do it all over the place. We don't say third base anymore. We do say Cobra position because people in the States here, kids, they don't play baseball. I mean, and it's really sad. Uh, again, I hate to sound doom and gloom, but most kids, when they ask them to throw a ball, it's like they're hanging on to a shot put. And tennis kids have played quite a while. I mean, we just recently had a kid here who was 11 and uh, can't throw a ball. You know, he's got a 11 on the UTR. He's got a palm up and uh, hangs onto the ball again like it's a, it's a shot put. Uh, Coma friends yeah. hair. We, we tell kids uh, that really are great listers that they start to comb their own hair and that's a problem. And then, you know, the listers want to, you know, keep, keep us going over stroke production. That's where that horizontal plane that's about five feet behind you, you know, we call that clear the shelf. Uh, but when people comb the hair, that distance is going to be shorter. When they comb the hair, the elbow is going to be higher. And if the elbow is higher, you're tight. Uh, but again, to write these down, we'll type these out. Um, the um, I know uh, you would remember going through this. Uh, 25 ideas on how to change someone from palm up to palm down. I mean, that's how years, mm -hmm. years ago you guys were tested. Um, the mirror, you know, Vic Braden, the salute position. That's another one. So we're up to, you know, 28 of these. Uh, the salute position that... Um, it's not where the slew position is right on your head. It's above your head. And you, Vic used to say, okay, you could look right up through your racket face. Um, Dunlop years ago with McEnroe had it be the halo. The halo wasn't directly over his head, but they took a position in him holding the serve in the slew position. And it was him being the angel with uh, the halo. Out with really beginning players, um, you know, the talk on the telephone or listen to the seashell, that doesn't keep the arm at a 90 degree angle, but that, um, that's a good way to help people with that. The last 180 degrees on the serve where your palm goes in to out. Going strong here, uh, finish with a high five, high five the giant. Right arm goes to the left arm, the power X. Check out the wristwatch. And then uh, when you're done, the racket goes to the pocket. If you have a continental grip, the racket goes over the pocket, the racket's on edge. If you have palm up, racket goes over the pocket and it's, the racket faces parallel to the ground. Um, what do you have to say about it? That's very fast. I'll, again, I'll type that up. Uh, images for the serve. Um, what do you have to say about that? Don't you think it's difficult today or do you find yourself doing less of this? Ask the question differently. You find yourself doing less of this where, um, you know, I think you tell someone in the States now, turn like a baseball pitcher. They don't really know what you're talking about. You think that's true? Yeah, I think 
I think uh, multi-sporting has definitely gone down. It's funny, you know, I'm sitting here in my kind of weight room office and I'm looking, as you were saying, baseball, I glanced over on my wall. It's a uh, big picture of Jeter and A-Rod. And uh, it's the one scene where, you know, Derek Jeter um, at shortstop basically went into the stands horizontally to catch a ball. And, you know, A-Rod standing there watching him with his arms up in the air like he couldn't even believe he went went up there. And, yeah, that those guys could uh, – they did they do everything that you just described. And, uh, you know, when I take a kid through, I, I have a big bag that I keep a lot of different things in, everything from, you know, softball, baseball to baseball glove. And when I try to get them to throw and teach them how a pitcher uses their glove hand to – as a reactive break. So, you know, like Nolan Ryan was unbelievable at it when you look at his footage, um, which is why he was thrown so hard and so long in his life without injury. And, um, but I mean, I, all of the things, versions of it, I mean, we, we're still throwing that stuff at them, trying to make them better athletes, trying to, you know, I think uh, even if they even if they can't throw, I've had many kids though that I think serve way better than they throw. Um, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, I mean they they you know one that used to practice with Connor uh, Alexei, remember who went on and played very high up at Harvard. Yeah. Um, he was he, he got to the point where he was dropping bombs as a server, but you asked him to throw a ball, he still showed the signs of a, a youth where he didn't. Uh, didn't have any involvement in any other sport, but, um, yeah, it, it, it's tough to get, to get that out. I, I think we got to do a better job. I mean, I'm just speaking on my, my half of it now where, I mean, I, I've really been thinking about it. I mean, I got to find a way to get kids playing more basketball, you know, inside of our little basketball gym there, getting them out, doing some other things. Um, because the the athletic benefits and you know when I went out on the road there last summer and bumped into Goff's dad and just started talking sports with him really um, it wasn't really like what are, what are you doing with your daughter it was just sports and his daughter and, and Ashlyn were the same age and he, he asked a question about it and he said yeah he goes to be honest I don't care about her tennis he said I just tell her every day she's got to get better athletically and he said, because most of these girls aren't athletes. And, you know, and it was, I think at that particular tournament, 25 of the top 30 women were, were there. And, and, and he's basically saying he thought he was in a world of non-athletes. Um, so, yeah, I think athletic development, um, it didn't used to be that difficult to, 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 to breed, but I think it, it's become it might it might have to become a, a standard part of our curriculum, so to speak. Well, Jim Courier, number one in the world. I know a lot about the Jim Courier story. I met his sister and remember uh, even having his mom through a friend of mine, uh, Linda, to uh, read ne- the seg- segment of Neenagel's book on what his brain typing was. And uh, with, um, yeah, Courier, that work ethic, uh, so many things, uh, he stayed in the Olympic village and said, I used to think I was an athlete. Uh, get the stopwatch mm-hmm. out. I mean, I, we did commentate on these, the U S open singles, women's U S open singles, men's and, you know, Coco Goff is said, mom and dad, take your kid to the track. 
Um, my brother who studied Soviet sports, uh, you know, he became an expert on Soviet hockey. Uh, I got his PhD in Russian studies. Uh, be a master of two sports. I mean, I tell a lot of kids, basketball, 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 because uh, you can play that inexpensively. You can play, do solo drills, and you don't even need a hoop. You know, go to the YouTube, start dribbling left-handed, right-handed, forwards, backwards. Um, with uh, Brad Gilbert, love Brad Gilbert, but at one point he was telling Hingis, uh, Martina Hingis, actually, you remember... Uh, working with John Lafayaga, he played, he was with us in Texas for a short stint. He played doubles with her for three years, mix at Wimbledon. And uh, I said, Diaga, you got to teach her how to serve. And he wasn't going to say boo. I mean, he was uh, the unknown playing with the marquee player. And But I uh, love Brad Gilbert, but I don't think he's going to be uh, talking to uh, anybody about how Braden would tell you this is how the swing is formulated. You know, how the shoulder goes forward and action reaction and how you know, what makes it the first 90 degree turn or the 450 degrees. And it's not that complicated, but you have to be exposed to it. Uh, get a little kid football, um, have, him, have it in your bag. What should be in your bag is also uh, the little book of talent from Daniel Coyle. This is for the parents. Uh, we're upstairs, downstairs. we got some baseball gloves. Um, um, I'll end with one story. Uh, a P teacher comes to it comes to me and he goes, I hear you train tennis teachers. I go, yeah, I've trained tennis teachers for a little bit. He goes, well, I'd like to meet with you. Can I come and see? You? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come see me. So, you know, he flies in, this was in Tampa years ago. It flies in, it's over the holidays. The guy's 37, he, excuse me, he wasn't 37 years old. He taught PE for 37 years. And he's about to retire. He's going to teach one more spring. I go, really? You're going to teach one more spring semester? And I go, you want to learn how to teach tennis? He goes, yeah, I, I feel like I was pretty competent with all the sports I taught, but I could never get people to hit a tennis ball. I said, well, I'll tell you what, no no charge. I was just so impressed with this guy. But what he told me about kids, and this is for the parents, yeah, I mean, I, I know this with my own sons. I mean, one year I feel like I bought him a football for Christmas, and the next Christmas I could have given him the same football. That wouldn't have happened years ago because what he said is electronic toys. Tennis players, the parents... I tell parents all the time to do this, but the parents don't be your kid's friend until they're an adult. Don't worry if they don't like you. Parents, when your kid comes in the house, put their cell phone, they put their cell phone right on the kitchen counter and that's where it stays. Because, you know, my, when I was a kid, my father, like all fathers, would call the TV an idiot box. You spend too much time with the idiot box. Get away from the idiot box. And... Mm -hmm. But I think anyway, that's that's one thing with that young, that old man. That that was a story for many years ago. My kids were, you know, little kids at the time. And but why don't you end this? I know I'm supposed to say this. You can end it, but I'll say this: is that we're trying to create a roster. We want people to be part of a roster. We're not going to start charging fees. We're going to keep doing this for free. But we're asking people to. Uh, we'd like to have people donate ten dollars a month. We want to. Um, do a better job. So I've got that in on the fundraising. So now let's have David Anderson, Minot, North Dakota. There's a long podcast. Maybe we're uh, close to Andy Fitzell's crazy podcast and have to buy people more lottery tickets, but how do you want to end this podcast? Davey Anderson. Well, yeah, I mean, well, you know, we I, I, was, I was thinking what we could do. I don't want to interrupt you, but yeah, go um, ahead. And I tell you all the time that your wife married bad. Should we end on that one or you want to go in another different direction? Well, I mean, I think 
that depends on who you ask. I think she hit the lottery. But no, oh, I, mean, I love that listen, answer. It, uh, she hit the it, lottery. All right, what do you got? It, uh, no, I mean, it, it. I'm going down to help out Carter uh, at the Texas Tennis Summit. He he uh, asked me to come and say a few words. So the, 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 the beauty, I mean, everything that I'm going to be saying down there is stuff I, I pretty much uh, – have acquired from you over the years and it's tell everybody who, who's is, mike carter he was a guest one time tell us about mike carter yeah mike carter is uh he's a handsome devil he looked a lot like michael landon yeah a young michael landon back in the day he had good hair and uh but he's involved with usta texas and really nationally for uh, recreational tennis and um but he's a great tennis teacher and, um the guy has more energy than you could ever imagine and you it's know, all those and, personality uh, lessons I gave him. Yeah, I'm excited to go down there. But the, the topic that I chose was, you know, um, blending the art and science of tennis teaching. And, and, you know, you hit on many of those things tonight. And, and I think that, you know, I, I, would, I would say this to anybody that has hung around and listened this long already. Um, if you're a parent, put hurdles in the way of your kids. Prepare them rather than protect them. And... You know, it doesn't mean it's it's not it's not abuse. It's just uh, the tougher uh, every every sport is showing that the more adversity that an athlete goes through, that the better chance they have for success. I would say that if you're a coach or a teacher of, of tennis, um, that the the only joy of it really comes when you start seeking answers and that you have to go out on a mission, really on a personal mission first to, to just continue to gain as much knowledge. And, uh, and then, like you said, come up with ways to utilize that knowledge. And then if you're a player, if you're a player of any age really listening, I would say that there's just uh, the beauty is really what Jimmy Connor said. I mean, today I, I went out at seven thirty in the morning club opens and, you know, I played horribly, but I, I really do believe what Jimmy Connor said is true. And the best thing in, in, in life is playing tennis and winning. And the second best thing is playing tennis and losing. And if you go into it with that attitude and, you know, the scoreboard doesn't regulate it, then it's much easier for you to make adjustments and, and be on that personal quest to, to kind of just be the best you can be. So what oh, I would close great. with. No, thanks. Say hello to Mike Carter for us. I uh, love Carter. I will. Spent five years with that young boy. Um, I think he remembers those years. Well, I used to just love to yell his last name, Carter. But here, I'll, here's I'll one. Sure he remembers. Here's one. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is how it goes, but um, the question, should you peer, for parents, should you peer, prepare the kid for the road or prepare the road for the kid? And I do think right. sometimes people have that backwards. Uh, you got to prepare the kid the road i mean you yeah you know you know and i i do think we've touched upon that is that and uh, and again i'm all for the parents and i think the parents have sacrificed so much for their tennis but it is it is a long road for everyone and uh, i think it takes 10 years to be a player it takes 10 years to be a tennis teacher and it takes 10 years to really understand the ins and outs of uh uh tennis but um no this has been great so i think we're under the four yeah. hour mark um yeah, Good. But, uh, yeah, your wife did hit the lottery. She did. I'm glad we agree on that topic. Yeah, fact. Ivan, fact Ivan thank you behind the scenes, Ivan. Yeah, Yvonne. Yeah, the, Yvonne. 
He's the number one Yvonne Lendl. Only got to use so many finals eight times. But uh, yeah. anyway, I hope these crazy podcasts, uh, I'm told by people that they like them, listen 10 minutes at a time and uh, you get through one a week. But uh, David, thanks for your time. Yeah, appreciate it. All you right. guys have a good night. Right, you thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. All right. I need to shut up. This is a long podcast. Uh, I think we're going to limit these to uh, 40 minutes starting next week. Actually, I know that people like the length of these. There are some crazy people out there. Anyway, adios amigos. Thanks for listening. For the betterment of tennis, Steve Smith, great base tennis. Adios. Adios.